Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello to everybody in 5 by 5 land. It's Chris here, the uh, other half of the dynamic duo who present 5 by 5 I wanted to start the episode with an explanation to why it's late. Unfortunately, I've had a serious uh, situation occur with uh, one of my family members and uh, it's meant that I have had to spend a lot of time having to uh, run around and deal with the various uh, things that need dealing with. I won't go and bore everybody in the details because that's obviously for myself uh, to know. Uh, However, it may mean that some of the future episodes are a little bit more sporadic in their releasing date. So I know that we normally get them out as regular as clockwork on a Wednesday, but it looks like um, we'll be a little bit late, but we'll try and keep it as close to the schedule as we possibly can. So if it does turn out a little bit late, uh, I do apologise for any of the future episodes. Uh, Obviously, I have a very, very good reason for that. And I can only thank uh, the kindness of Mr. Mid not riding my uh, back on it, going, oh, get this done, get this edited, because I'm the one who does the editing. So I really appreciate his time and patience, and hopefully things will uh, sort of filter out and get back to normal as soon as possible. Either way, I'd like to thank everybody out there for their understanding, and again, apologies for the lateness of the show. You're listening to GM 5x5. That was Brick Shithouse and the Munters' classic Sexy Fingers. It was followed by Love Nub from Bristol's own Glenny Boy Experience. Up next, we have Films and Below with Middleton Jones' Mad Weekends. Only available via JM five by five, where the sounds of the strange keep on getting stranger. I think the most scariest part of the whole situation was when to peel back the face to reveal the fact that it was actually the arcade owner all the time. And he he said he would have got away with it too if it wasn't for us pesky kids. It's it's amazing uh, what can happen on a simple Butlins holiday. I know, it's the same old story, man. It's gone downhill, I think. Butlins is a strange place. It Strange is. place. Hello and welcome to Five by Five. I am one of your hosts, uh, Chris. I've got AIDS, Jones, and uh, with me, as always, is the uh, inevitably um, wonderful Mister Mid. How you doing, dude? How do I'm fine, mate. I have got the AIDS, Mid. I have got the AIDS. You do. You've got it strong. 
everybody says I haven't got AIDS, but I got the AIDS. It's this. It's like a super lurg, and <laughs> everybody's got it. My kid had it, and it, it's bloody everywhere. AIDS is everywhere. It's rampant, <laughs> and and it basically, uh, I ended up getting it. And before anybody starts ringing in and writing and going, don't you be saying that you're besmirching people who suffer from AIDS. First off, right? They might... says it's okay now. Look, first off, they might have AIDS, but I have super AIDS. That's worse. Okay. And I've so... seen an episode, mate. I've seen an episode of South Park, and they said it's okay. You're allowed to do it now. It's, it's okay to make a joke about AIDS. <laughs> uh... <laughs> I'm sorry. I want to stop making those jokes just in case i do end up offending by somebody. now people are very much aware of our senses they, they, well <laughs> if they aren't unlucky if it's the first podcast you ever heard get used to it that's the they way we roll we suck an ass yeah it's inappropriate humor silliness of course we don't mean people should have aids uh although hitler could have that would have been funny if hitler had aids wouldn't it hitler Can't aids <laughs> do you reckon hitler had aids that's Nazi. why he blasted his brains out could be could have been who knows we'll never know we didn't get a blood sample (laughs) (coughs) jesus christ you still sound like you're dying man yeah so let's let's talk about the film that we're here to discuss today uh i'm going to be drowning my um non-aids uh with my uh with some beers uh to uh to uh lighten the load the burden, as it were. Uh, Mr. Mid, what are we talking about today? Because I want to try and get you to do as much talking as possible. Because it yes. hurts when I breathe. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have breathing breaks, don't you now? <laughs> <gasps> yeah. <laughs> Shit, I should have done that. Incidentally, li- listeners, if you do hear Chris like gasping at any point during this podcast, it's not that he's shocked by something. He's just trying to breathe. <laughs> yeah, I'm not shocked by anything. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not in awe of anything. I'm either trying to breathe or having a wank. Uh, no. No. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, no, I, I'm not. I'm just you having a wank. <laughs> I finally came up with a excuse that might work. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Sorry. We, what, what, right, we're talking about Reservoir Dogs. Um, the 1992, yeah. is it the directorial debut of Mr. Quentin Tarantino? Um, he, he did some short films prior to this, but this is his first full-length feature. Were they any good, though? I don't know. I've never seen them. Well, what's that tell you? (laughs) (laughs) This is certainly his first feature-length film uh, written and directed by him. Um, It's also, uh, this podcast is the first of two Tarantino podcasts. What? Two? We're we're doing a double-header. This one and the next one will both be Tarantino films. This one we are focusing on Reservoir Dogs. You didn't tell me you had to do double head. I... Oh, yes. You didn't pay me enough for double penetration, homeboy. <laughs> <laughs> not not enough for the double Quentin. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't me breathing. That's mid on his bloody jab of the hut pipe. No, it isn't. It's him breathing. <laughs> <laughs> He's got some kind of like strange breathing apparatus now. It's, I call it my uh, my sexual energy mask. I wear it, it before it, a good session. It gives him sexual powers. <laughs> Homer Simpson sleeps in an oxygen tent. He says it gives him sexual powers. <laughs> one, of the, one of the best lines I've ever heard in the Simpsons episode. <laughs> anyway, I'm digressing into the Simpsons. Um, 
1992, it's Reservoir Dogs. It's a massive cultural hit. It's huge. I mean, absolutely huge when this film came out. It came out of nowhere. Um, and uh, somewhat controversially, uh, as we talk about this film, it helped uh, with the old Miramax. Oh, dear. <laughs> At the time. Um, but it was from that stable of films where they couldn't release anything bad. Yeah. Everything yeah, was great. Think, um, during the early to mid-90s, they could do no wrong. They had a big string of hits. Brilliant I mean, films. It, it is a really interesting story how it all came about, to be honest with you. Because you know um, when... Um, well, prior to this film, Tarantino was like any one of us. He, he worked at a normal day job. He was actually... Um, he actually jockeyed a, a register at a video store in Manhattan Beach, California. That that was his job. But it was obviously his job. Come on, it's Quentin Tarantino. The guy is like an encyclopedia of film knowledge. He was obviously going to work in a video store or cinema or something like that, wasn't he? So You ever seen... You know... Have you ever seen the fucking stupidest question? I've been with you while we've been watching it. In Clerks, <laughs> right? <laughs> when, in Clerks, where um, Randall is ordering the videos and he's going for all the porn titles and everything else. Yeah. Do you reckon that's... Like, when they were ordering videos, do you reckon Tarantino just thought bollocks to it and just ordered all the cool kung fu films and all that kind of stuff that he wanted and just watched them? I'd like to think he did, to be honest with you, yeah. Yeah. He probably, he probably brought his own videos in with him because he didn't have decent ones at the shop. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine that. Kid, you don't want to watch Bambi. You want to watch this. <laughs> Out comes a Sonny Chiba film. <laughs> that kid has just watched somebody get decapitated. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. Because that's that Chiba Young. Well, it's all the stuff. It's all the, the kind of cool thing about Quentin Tarantino, which I've always liked about the whole fact that he worked in a video shop. Is he essentially every video shop we went in our generation as kids and saw all those banned films, oh, not banned, but all the eighteen rated films and all the yeah. piles of crap that you would see, like Chud and um, and oh, Chud. I love Chud. I, we are doing that on a podcast. I'm telling you now. I look, although, have you seen the sequel, Chud Two, Chud the Bud? Chud the Bud. It's awful. Amazing. It's comedy. <laughs> it's fucking weird. I'm not going to lie. We might do a twofer, Chud and Chud the Bud. <laughs> <laughs> the song in it's weird. Chud the Bud. Very odd. Anyway, so <laughs> we have his own theme song. Yeah. I'm not joking, it really does. Anyway, so... No, 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 no. As a digression now, <laughs> Chris is going to find this out, and through the magic wizardry of editing, we're going to insert a clip of it right here. <laughs> Shut the butt. I will try. Let's see what I can do. I will see what we do for the old magic of editing. Um, so if if this goes to plan, you should hear it right about when, Mr. Mid? Ooh, now.
So there you go. Chud the bird. Chud the bird. Bloody hell. <laughs> so... <laughs> Christ on a bike. You couldn't make it up, could you? It's so weird. So anyway. <laughs> Chud the bird. So anyway, right. Um, so he'd have been surrounded with films like Chud. And... But you think that's just it. Tarantino's known for like loving these really cool out there films and all the rest of it, but he, he, just like anyone else, he'd probably watch a whole mind of crap that he found entertaining anyway. Man, probably Ghoulies. stuff like Chud and the like. Yeah, Ghoulies, Chud, <laughs> fucking, you name it, man. Come, come on, if if we if we were that of that generation, and we worked in a video shop. That's totally what we'd be doing. Oh man, I think my mind would have blown <laughs> if at that age if I ran a yeah, video shop. Good God, I'd be just like every... I wouldn't have slept. I'd have just watched film after film, just drinking bloody cans of Coke and eating Mars bars going, this is amazing! And then, like, my tiny mind would explode about 5am one morning. The thing is, as well, for the people (coughs) of Manhattan Beach, California, how lucky were they to have him in the local video shop? Okay, he wasn't known at the time, he wasn't famous, but a man with that level of knowledge of film throwing out all these cool suggestions of films to rent. I'd be there all the friggin' time. I would, you, know, you know, irrespective of the fact that you might be a nobody. I would love to have seen him fire off <laughs> at, at, at people for their film choices. <laughs> no, no, no. You want you want to go for the Sonny Chiba films at the back? You want to go, yeah, no, those side. That go that side. <laughs> that would be brilliant. Oh, man. that Honestly, I would love... Because nobody's ever come forward, have they, about that period of time and start talking about uh, memories of being served by Quentin Tarantino? Because you'd think, no. you know, somebody might have one. You'd expect to hear some stories about that out there, wouldn't you, really? But... There probably well, is, I, but I, in I, bars I and stuff. I haven't heard anything myself, but... This is probably not on the internet. I bet you that somebody, there's a few people out there who went, oh, yeah, I used to talk to Quentin all the time. Creepy guy. <laughs> Strange man. <laughs> very tall. Very, very weird. Um Chin. <laughs> Big chin, um, yeah. So, so he, how did he get the 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 money together? Sorry, we went on this mad digression. You were talking about <clears throat> the origins. So he's this film jockey. Yeah. Well, well, well. Basically, he he used his job um, working in this video store in Manhattan Beach, basically to fund Reservoir Dogs. Um, and he basically he, he had a, a friend, uh, Lawrence Bender who he worked with uh, in tandem. The guy was going to be his producer. Um, Bender was uh, an aspiring actor at the time, but being a friend of Quentin, he he agreed to help him out with the Reservoir Dogs. Um, The idea that they had was to um, aim for a $30,000 budget, rope in friends, and do the whole thing 16mm black and white, because it would have been, at that time, the most cost-effective way of doing it. And really, in black and white, it would have been fucking cool. Can you imagine Reservoir Dogs in black and white? That would have actually been pretty sweet, I think. Uh, you know what? Thinking about it, I think it might have perhaps have got less of a, a rating because See, of the but, violence. Uh, I- I think that's. I think that 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 is a part of it. Some people choose to film in black and white because if it's a particularly um, strong film, shall we say, mm. uh, visually, it, it kind of um, as far as the um, the the people who dish out the certification is concerned, it dulls it a little, doesn't it? it if you can't see bright reds and all the rest of it, they're a little happier. 
and yeah, it, it could have been a creative decision on that part, but it's also, I think, mainly the fact that 16 mil black and white film stock would have been cheaper than going color, basically. Oh yeah, I think I think that I think that's the rationale behind it. But it would have been really fucking cool to see Reservoir Dogs filmed in black and white. Mm. I mean, yeah, as an original plan, that would have been quite sweet. But that, that would have been kind of cool. Yeah, it wasn't the way it went down. I mean, he worked with Lawrence Bender, um, who basically taken on the role of producer, took Quentin's script for Reservoir Dogs, and he basically pimped it around. He he showed it to people who he knew thought you know might have a passing interest, might want to pop some money into it and make it come to fruition. And um, Bender managed to get the script um, basically to um, his acting teacher who read it through because he he basically wanted to say like what's your opinion on this is what, what do you think and um, this person was so impressed by it they had connections in the industry their connection in the industry was harvey Keitel. what yeah um basically from from lawrence bender handing the script over to his acting teacher it basically then hand, ended up in the hands of harvey Keitel. Uh, and he read the script and he absolutely loved it. And as soon as he read it, he signed on as a co-producer um, to help Tarantino and Bender secure the money that they needed. That's awesome. Well, you know, if you think like in in the early nineties, um, Harvey Keitel was a pretty big deal. He, he was bad lieutenant very, man. He, he was a very respected actor, and he he, he, had, he had a string of. Um, very much um, respected hit films during those years, you know, from from the early seventies onwards. Um, So having a name like Harvey Keitel behind a film like that certainly helped them. Um, So much so basically with Keitel's help, um, they managed to exceed their desired budget by quite a lot. Um, With Keitel on board, they managed to raise 1.5 million to shoot Reservoir Dogs. Just that—that's from thirty thousand dollars to one point five million. If, you, if you're thinking of like from Tarantino and Bender's perspective at this time, they're fucking laughing because they budgeted so much less than this. They budgeted thirty grand and said we can do this film for thirty grand. Now they've got one point two million to play with. That's incredible. And it's like it—it it, it opens the door, doesn't it? It—it. It, 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 no, it wasn't 1.2. Sorry, 1.5. Sorry, 1.5. Yeah, yeah, it was 1.5 million. And th- this basically opened the door to more possibilities. But Kaisel just went, he loved it so much, he went above and beyond. He didn't stop there at helping them raise this money. He fronted the money, being as a, co- a co-producer, he, he stumped up some cash himself to hold casting calls in New York City. That is cool. He paid for them. And in doing so, he roped in some people that he knew who might be interested in trying out the film. And this is how they got hold of uh, Tim Roth, Steve Buscemi, and Michael Madsen. Um, An interesting story about the Tim Roth one, actually. Roth was reticent to read the script. He only agreed to read for the part that um, he ultimately had, Mr. Orange, after he went out drinking with Tarantino and Bender and got drunk with them. 
Do we go on a night out with him? What's no? Well, is it? Yeah, it is. No, you, you, you think okay? These two like unknown guys. They want me to be in their film. They could be a pair of rip-off merchants for all I know. What's the best way you disarm someone and get to know them? You get hammered with them, don't you? <laughs> and, and that's what and that's what happened. Um, Tim Roth went and got drunk with Tarantino and Bender, and uh, that's when he said, "Okay, yep, I'll read for the part." And he, of course, got it. <laughs> that is uh, that's cool. I've got another little side story for you. Yeah, potentially linked to Tim Roth's involvement. <clears throat> right? Do you know who may have been Mister Orange at one point? But it's a speculation. I I, I know totally who it was because that's also um, that's a rumor that's gone around for many years. I don't know if it's ever been confirmed by the actor in question, but it was. Oh God. James Woods, sorry. There you go. It went out of my head for a minute. There. Do you know the story <laughs> behind it, though? I don't know the story behind it. I know it was him, though. I know he was the, the person story Tarantino behind it. originally wanted to have. Funniest. Right. Tarantino wanted James Woods, like you quite rightly said. So, okay, so he made uh, five like different cash offers, and uh, his agent, every time, because he's obviously got to go through the agent, refused all the offers and didn't even mention it to James Woods. Because the the offers that Tarantino were doing were too low right. for what Woods was used to. So years later, Tarantino is obviously very, very big now. James Woods comes up to him and uh, so they meet for the first time. And Woods, it's only then that Woods finds out that Tarantino was like, um, I was, I was going to try, I was trying to get hold of you for Reservoir Dogs. And he was like, hang on, what? So, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to get hold of you, um, but the, your agent kept telling us no because we were offering you too little money. We, I mean, we tried five times, but um, and he, he wouldn't. He didn't tell Woods who the role he was going to get, so it's all speculative. Oh, that guy was so fired. Uh, well, Woods <laughs> basically went, "You what?" When out, Rungi Tage went, "You're fucking done, son." <laughs> I got a new agent. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you think about Tarantino, he, he imagine that one of the biggest all the nineties cult it, films really? of all time is Reservoir Dogs. It will right, yes, it will age, and I've seen it recently. Yes, it aged. I'm not being oh, funny well, though. No. I don't know if it's aged it's, that badly. It's, really. not, it's not totally badly, but I mean, it's a product of its time. At the same yeah. time, right? That's not a you bad can tell thing. It's made in the early nineties. Yeah, and it's, it's not. It's, it's, it's not a bad thing, but. What's good about it is it will always be a brilliant film. Yeah, it's 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 kind of like to me. There's no difference with Res- at this point in time now. Um, it, since it's been so long since the film came out, you know what? Two thousand two. Uh, so it's twenty five years. No, twenty six years old. Twenty six years this year. Yeah. Yeah. So a twenty six year old film. Okay. Uh, at this point, to me. There is no difference between um, an iconic scene such as, like, um, Jack Nicholson going through a wall in The Shining, going, here's Johnny, and um, you talking to me, you talking to me, that kind of thing, and Michael Madsen dancing around to steal his wheel, cutting a guy to pieces with a razor blade. 
there is, it's, it's, it's that. It's like, Matt, so the, 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 there's a number of iconic moments in that film. I mean, even the way in which the fucking introduction the film opens. <laughs> yeah, we we just have a round table discussion for like it was like what a good five, nearly ten minutes. Uh, yeah, and that's the signature opening for Quentin Tarantino, isn't it? But yeah, but it's it's just so it's just so brilliant because people wouldn't be used to this kind of opening to a film, and it, it just ends perfectly going into the opening sequence, doesn't mm. it? A great uh, film, bloody brilliant start for a film. I mean, for, for a debut feature to to start like that, 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 that the whole like a virgin discussion. Yeah, it, it it's just a expertly written five ten minutes of dialogue between these people, and it's. It's just, it, I don't know, it's, it's that level of camaraderie that it's, it, it, it just, it, straight from the off, you've got a handle on these characters, you've got a handle of their um, relationships to one another. Mm. I mean, we, we're not really aware at this point that they don't really know each other, but they're talking like they do. And you have no idea that's, that's what their involvement cool. in anything is. They're just you, you guys eating going, breakfast. It's some guys eating breakfast, they're talking about like a virgin, and they're arguing about the fact that one of them doesn't want to give tips. Mm. <laughs> wait, wait, I've got, right? Connected to that scene at the very beginning, I've got another little tidbit for you. Go on. <clears throat> right. You know the opening conversation? Okay, yeah. Quentin Tarantino's talking about Like a Virgin. Yeah? Oh, is this the Madonna thing? Yeah. I've she, heard this. Yeah. She loved she loved the film. And uh, when she met him, she gave him a copy of the, her erotica album. You know, the one with those with the, the yeah, filthy yeah. pictures of her and all that kind of stuff and talking <laughs> about sex. And it's signed, inside it signed something like, To Quentin, it's not about dick, it's about love. Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> How cool is that? Yeah, it's kind of cool, though, I think. I think that's that's... right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, it's stuff like that. And you're like, man. That's a cool little thing, though, that, isn't it? <laughs> How can you make one film that has such a cultural impact that it makes somebody as, with respect, as self-important as Madonna suddenly turn around That's, and go... This is Quentin. Madonna, like, probably at the height of her fame. At well. the very height, I would say. I would I would argue you're right. I, I would say at the very height of her fame is in... If it was in today's terms, I know people make this comparison all the time, it's like Lady Gaga, like, you, you couldn't get near her. I mean, you still can't yeah. get near her. It's not like, you know, it's changed much, but yeah. this was when she was <coughs> completely catapulted, um, you know, because what, from 85, 86, when she starts yeah. out, and then to 92? So, you know, this is yeah, yeah. like prime Madonna, isn't it? Yeah. Just when she started turning up in films, like... Um, I mean, she turned. I think she turned up in Desperately Seeking, Seeking Susan. That but, was the first one, and yeah. she also did. Who's that girl? Yep, wasn't that? That's it. Yeah, and then so those those are the two those are the two eighties films. But then she did uh, League of Their Own. Tracy, wasn't it in the early nineties? And th- well, yeah. that was the biggest one for her, wasn't it? Dick well, Tracy. It, that was huge at it, the time. It, 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 it made a lot of money, but it got a lot of um, critical flack, didn't it? But yeah, but the I audience loved it. It. It, 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 made, I yeah. it. I think it's brilliant. I loved it. Really I would love to that. do Dick Tracy as a pod. I, I think it's a I, great film. I'm with you on that one, mate, because yeah. I actually, I, I, I really enjoyed that film when I was a kid. I haven't yeah. actually seen the film in years, so that's actually a good excuse. It's still really it. good, if, if anything, to see Flea. Well, it's, no, it's not Flea. Um, hang on, another digression. I always thought it was Flea from, uh, from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, is one of the um, gangsters, but it's but, not. See, that's the thing about the gangsters in the film, because they're wearing so many prosthetics and stuff, you're actually surprised when you find out who was in those roles. 
But there's a lot of heavy hitting actors in there. I'm not being funny. Al Pacino. Al Pacino. Fucking Dustin uh, Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman as well, yeah. <laughs> you know, Warren Beatty's no slouch, you know. It's kind of like, yeah. what the hell? Didn't he, didn't he like produce it or executive Yeah, produce? well, he was a massive Dick Tracy fan. Yeah, he was, yeah. I think it was, it was, all, it was his push to get it made. Yeah, it was it? his passion project. And yeah. you know what? I think he did a great job. I think he, yeah. he, he did a stellar job. That, I really when I watched Dick Tracy, I think of Dick Tracy as a, uh, uh, one of the few comic books that's actually a perfect conversion from, from page to screen. Yeah. Because it, it looks exactly like the goddamn comic book. <coughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, we digress. But like we can no, no, rightly no, say... No, it's good you brought it up, though, because I... I, I no, seriously, I would actually like to do a pod on Dick Tracy. Yeah, man, let's do it. That'd be cool. I think we should do a comic book season. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, like comic book films. Yeah, as long as like... we get to talk about The Rocketeer. I fucking oh, The Rocketeer. Film. Oh, we're just going to digress all the time now, remembering fucking ace films from our childhood, aren't we? <laughs> it's just, it just turns... One of those again. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but Madonna, this is Madonna at her peak, and she's bowing down to the 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 might of uh, Tarantino's debut film. I mean, it had a huge... I mean, it was banned in the UK for how long? Um, for me... a few years. It, it was, was actually three or four years. I think it was three or four years. But basically, it didn't get a home video release until after the release of Pulp Fiction and the continued success of Tarantino. Because I don't know if people in this country actually thought he was, he was like a flash in the pan, a lightning would never strike twice, all that kind of thing. But um, it did. And uh, after the success of Pulp Fiction, it wasn't long after that that Reservoir Dogs finally got its home video release. And I remember it vividly because I got a copy of Reservoir Dogs just after it was... Uh, officially released so it would have been in uh, yeah, 93 94 something like that i think it was uh true story i had an awesome music teacher at secondary school I had a couple of my music teachers were awesome um but he left i think after my first year um really cool guy i won't say his name because i don't want to embarrass him uh, but he was a really good guy and i'll always remember i always remember when he um started talking he started talking one uh, lesson the way he introduced it going i had a very good weekend i went to the cinema and he goes oh, i saw an interesting film over the weekend and he started talking about i'm in year seven at secondary school i talking to you about reservoir dogs about reservoir dogs i had a teacher like that in primary school who did a similar thing with terminator <laughs> it, was the year, it was it was the year t2 came out jesus and he started talking to us about. Well, I remember vividly having a discussion with him about T two and particularly the score and Brad Fidel. Wow, yeah. I, I couldn't have been like what fucking what ten eleven, and I was having this conversation about Terminator two with my teacher. Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> yeah, like literally, <laughs> no word of a lie, no word of a lie. Right, <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> um, basically, um, I. I had this introduction to Tarantino for a music lesson yeah. and uh, the teacher in question, who was awesome and wicked teacher. He goes, uh, went to the cinema, watched a film called Reservoir Dogs. And he goes, and he starts dancing along and you couldn't, he said, what I found was amazing about it. And it always stuck with me this bit. I always remember this uh, memory of, of his discussion of it. He goes, what stuck with me was, <clears throat> when um, 
when it it became comedic and ultra violent. He went, it went really violent and sca- like, oh, the audience is going, oh god, because yeah. they chops a cop's ears uh, uh, ear off, and then he's putting the ear to his mouth, going, hello, hello, yeah. and I'm, we're all laughing. These like, you know, these eleven year old kids yeah. are all laughing about it because they're well, like, kids, what? Kids love hearing about stuff like yeah. that, don't they? Oh yeah, they love. They, they love- they love being told about these things, even though they haven't necessarily seen them or able to see them themselves. I mean, my young nephew, when he found out I was going to see it, he kept asking me questions about it. Oh, gosh. Obviously, I wasn't going to tell him stuff, but he, he seemed, like, fascinated by it. I think that's just it. Little kids are fascinated by these things, aren't they? Oh, yeah. All uh, the they're, time. Because they're forbidden to them. Well, dude... And so it... they immediately automatically on a subconscious level hold an allure don't they from a very early age to go back to uh, a previous pod perfect example my introduction to robocop like like i said on the pod loved it loved the look of it my dad was a police officer um and i was like wow it's a he's a police officer he's one of the good guys so Oh my god! And he's coming out of a car. He looks wicked. Oh, he looks cool. He's got that visor, and he looks brilliant. And I looked in the back, and you had the kind of the Walker legs on the back of the video, and like yeah. Robocop walking away after he blows him up at the end of the film, the OCP building, and a, a few other things like that. And I always remember going, "Oh, Dad, what's it about?" And my dad, like I said in the pod, telling me, "Go, well, there's these things that look like um, the uh, what are they called? Those chicken walkers from Star Wars? ATSDs? Yeah, them them things. It looks like one of them, and it's walking around." And I was like, "Oh, totally fascinated." And mm. I'll always, always remember the fact that my dad uh, used it as bribery material for me to get to do stuff. But I was absolutely fascinated <laughs> with that. That Freddy Krueger. Um, yeah. Freddy Krueger. The about Freddy Krueger. I the, think the, that's it. I think every, every generation has this almost forbidden character that they know about mm. and they seem absolutely drawn to but they don't know why and like yeah like you're saying like in the 1980s freddy krueger yeah. like i said now with, with with my young nephew it's like it seems to be pennywise the clown because it's massive and it's everywhere isn't it yeah i, I think that's just it though isn't it i mean there's an allure to these characters in films when you're of an age, um, when, when when you're a small kid. I mean, for for us back in the 1980s, it would have been someone like Freddy Krueger, like you were saying. Mm. Um, and nowadays, like I was saying before with my young nephew, um, he seems to be obsessed asking me questions about Pennywise the Clown. And it's because these characters are just so, um, I don't know, the mysterious to kids because they're forbidden to them, aren't they? Yeah, there's an allure to that, how they are, isn't there? They hold an allure in that way, because um, at that age, you're drawn to the unknown anyway, aren't you? You've got, you're, you're constantly got questions and stuff. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's, uh, what got me was the imagery you would see. So as a, as a kid, if you went into a video shop, <coughs> you'd, get, um, you'd get imagery, certain imagery that make you go, wow, okay, that's kind of cool. Like, uh, perfect example for me. Have you ever heard of the film Cellar Dweller? No. Front cover had this crazy-looking demon coming out of, like, a wooden Evil Dead 2-style wooden basement hatch. Right. 
and it's got like a pentagram around it and it's kind of like this gnarly looking thing and it's like lifting its fist and it looks really cool. The yeah. film is utter dog shit. Um but <laughs> but that cover, because they had yeah, these great covers, and you'd be like, What is that? It's a monster? Is it scary? Was it the devil? What um when you're kids going into video shops you see the front cover of these like, horror movies and they kind of stick in your head yeah um what's that one it, it was a uh, god it was a mid-80s one it had describe uh, the poster see if i can grab it it was a face and it was like half like sort of stretched out i think it's the beyond the beyond not no it's not the beyond it's from oh from beyond from Beyond. Yeah. And it had a thingy in there out of um, Reanimator. Yeah. Jeffrey Coombs. Yeah, Jeffrey Coombs. I've met you, him. You know, you know the cuts of that, don't you? Yeah. But it's stuff like that. Cause you, you see that in a video shop and it sticks in your head and it never leaves your head. And uh, I think that's like the, the clever way in which films are marketed, particularly back then, particularly in the way of horror movies. Oh, the yeah. A nasty thing. It was designed to go, oh, this one looks messed up. It'll draw you in. And stuff like that sticks in your head, doesn't it? And I mean... The, like that one, I remember that vividly as a kid. Same here. Uh, one, um, for me, Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Yeah. Paints a picture, there's a junkyard, so all these smashed up horrible junkyard, like light coming from the floor, and you've got um, Freddy Krueger, like, kind of putting his eye down, so it's kind of like exposing yeah. his eye a bit, and it's yeah. all horrific, and it's like, are you ready for Freddy, I think, uh, that's Absolutely. on it? Any of the covers for the Nightmare on Elm Street films oh, they're all are, good. are memorable, aren't they? Oh, yeah, they definitely. They were everywhere. But, but this is the thing. Um, a lot of the listeners are probably like, well, why are they talking about horror films? You have to remember that Reservoir Dogs was of a period where the censorship was very different to how it is now. And... There are a lot of things that I think get released now that I think in the 80s, even though people go, oh, the 80s had all this, this whatever, would be very differently classed. Um, for example, X-Men First Class is a 12, I think. I think it's yeah. a 12. Let me have a look. It's on my it shelf. Yeah, it's 12, right? Okay. Um, back in the 80s, the moment Wolverine goes, go fuck yourself, it'd have been a 15. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's some. Th- this right. is the difference. Um and I think there was a lot of stuff in the 80s that would be reclassed and, and, and changed around as well. But I think... I think we were a lot more coy and stuff back then, weren't we, really? Yeah, and I, I think some, I think there's too much trepidation, I think, yeah. depending on uh, media. And I'm very much of the opinion that media in itself, um, the legislations around media and who can watch what is more guided to the individual rather than, and I've always been a believer of that, rather than it being a blanket thing. Now, does that mean I'm going to start showing five-year-olds 18-rated um, films? No. But what I'm saying is, I think if my daughter, for example, was um, showed that she was very mature and could handle it, go, though, that's completely fake, it's a completely different film, I can watch that and differentiate reality and fantasy, I can watch yeah. that and enjoy it, you know, say she's 10 years old and she goes, um, I really, really, really like the look of that Beetlejuice film. OK, yeah. um, it looks kind of crazy. I'm kind of like goth stuff. I'd like to watch it. Uh, I know it's not real. It's not real. That is fine. Now, 
if I could uh, clarify that it's not something that she's going to go running out and either trying to imitate or it's going to affect her in any kind of way that perturbs her, yeah. I, I wouldn't have a problem with it because it's more regulated by the individual. I mean, Beetlejuice, for example, like you were saying, that's a really good example that you've brought up because really looking at a film like Beetlejuice, it, it's, it's quite inoffensive, isn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's some okay, there's some occurrences of bad language, and there's a few shock scares. And I mean, bear in mind, but, my dad wouldn't let me watch Beetlejuice because he didn't like the yeah. way he treated women. Yeah, yeah, let me watch oh, yeah, Robocop. Yeah, it's strange. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah there, there is also that as well. But so the, I mean, yeah, sorry. Th- th- there's worse films that you can show a young kid. Really, isn't it? I mean, I I I think Beetlejuice on a level of um, being scary or completely, you know, messing a kid up. It's not going to do that, is it? No. <laughs> you know. And I think, no. and I think, really, ultimately, that's what it boils down to. Let's be honest. What what we're really talking about is Tarantino's sensibilities about the kind of things he references. And the kind of attitudes he has towards violence, because he goes, no, it's it's fantasy. Yeah. Okay, he goes, that is fantasy. It's not real. I don't advocate violence, and I really get pissed off when uh, journalists try to for like, isn't it Christian Guru Murphy? Oh, he does it a lot. Yeah, he's a dick. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, like, like he he basically he hijacks interviews, doesn't he? Yeah, and he yeah. did it with Tantino. Went, no, 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 I'm shutting your butt down. No, yeah. no, no. Because, yeah, because he was trying to, he was trying to put words I mean, in his mouth. I'm here interviewing. I, I'm here being interviewed about hateful eight, and you're bringing this shit up. It's like, no, sorry, bye. Yeah, and I and I completely back Tarantino up for that oh, because yeah. it 100%. the whole point of that interview isn't an ambush piece to talk about all the, his previous work. It's a fluff filler bit talking about the film he was advertising for that time. And Tarantino pretty much says so. He goes, no, no, no. This is what this is for. We don't do that. If it was a documentary talking about, uh, like a serious documentary looking at violence and in cinema and it had plenty of time to have a non-bias kind of soundbite journalist kind of thing, very, very different. And Tarantino sees that and I've got full respect for the man because he goes, no, I'm shutting your butt down. I don't like that kind of journalism. He does yeah. it to Robert Downey oh, Jr. Yeah. as well. And that was really wrong of him. Uh, I don't think that's fair. If you're going to do it, pick your battles. Have the interview and say, do you mind we could if we could do or schedule a really thought-provoking, in-depth interview sometime soon? I would have asked that after the interview. Yeah. You respect them, you do the fluff piece. Then you talk to them about doing something they can prepare for. Because that is not fair. You're catching people on guard. That's not real journalism. If we're not talking about Frost Nixon here, we're talking about films. We're talking about films. We're not talking about the the political undertones of um, what Nixon was doing and then you had David Frost suddenly getting him and going, oh, what do I do? Yeah. That was very different. That was something that affected the world and countries and the world, okay? We're talking about films. Yes, I'm not despairing the uh, cultural impact of film. If if I would 
uh, do that, I'd be a hypocrite because, hell, we're doing a film podcast. <laughs> My point is, if you're going to do that kind of thing uh, to somebody, especially a director that has been under the spotlight regarding censorship and violence, you do not chuck him under a bus. You're not going to... All it serves for is to make you look like a dick and have your interview shut down and potentially never get to interview somebody who could give you a mountain of information and hear their point of view and listen to their opinions on a respectful level. And it really bugs me when journalists do that because I'm like, it's a fluff piece. Make no mistake about it. We're not doing bowling for Columbine where you're doing something about a genuine statement about guns and violence in America. You're talking to a director who's trying to promote their film. Exactly. There is a time and place. That is not the time and fucking place, you moron. Uh, I was so angry when I was watching it. And yeah. I know it sounds ridiculous, like an over-exaggeration saying so angry, but what made me angry about it was you're pissing off somebody and making him more adverse to talk about that subject. And yeah. I think anything he had to say... Would be fascinating at a later date, uh, late days, a later date, in the correct, appropriate manner, where he had time to compose himself, had an idea what was going to be asked, be able to have a counter argument to stuff, and prepare for it like everybody else generally does through debates and things, and really prepare for the kind of things that were going to be asked of him. And when you look at censorship and you look at violence in cinema. I think there are few names in modern history when it comes to directors that is under the microscope more than Quentin Tarantino. And I think this film, Reservoir Dogs, um, was no exception. I think it was yeah. the one that started the ball rolling. In fact, in my opinion, it's way more violent than Pulp Fiction ever was. Yeah. It's, I think it's more visceral in, um, mm. in Reservoir Dogs, isn't it, really? But even then, I think... I think the violence is overplayed, as in in the yeah. ridiculous, uh, ridiculous thing to say. But from the perspective of people who report on the violence on those films, yeah. I don't see anything in those films that's necessarily as bad as uh, worse than anything that came before it. Yeah, I don't watch RoboCop, for example, because I can think that's one of the most violent films I've ever seen. I don't think anything in Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction um, will ever equal the some of the violence that you see in I mean, Robocop in my opinion that's just, that's just it. I mean Tarantino was uh, I think unfairly criticised at the time for being gratuitous in his violence Yeah. yet the, the one scene in the film that everyone talks about in the um, conversation regarding violence you don't even see it happen it no. pans away that's the beauty of it. He pans away from it. He does a John Carpenter. He exactly. goes to the side and you see the shadow, which I think is a really, it's almost Hitch, like Hitchcock. Yeah. It's really well, well done. And what annoys the hell out of me is people, like you say, quite rightly, lay into this film, start throwing in about, oh, well, the violence and you see this, this and this. Okay, okay, let's just say... <coughs> for argument's sake um, that it's gratuitous violence I don't think so do you know why read a crime novel yeah read the kind of stuff that went on in the 50s and 60s with gangsters now 
stop there and go back further and you talk about the kind of violence that happened in human history with i'm not being funny zulu fantastic film an amazing film but does it show the violence in the correct representation of how it really happened no No. because it's not you couldn't you You couldn't couldn't. you definitely couldn't but but the argument goes the reason they the the director of zulu uh makes the film that he does is because he doesn't want to um make a visceral film he wants to make an impactful drama and where you see a character driven piece and yes there is violence in it and yes it gets the um viewer to feel for the characters and get involved emotionally in the film that's just a well-written film though isn't it's a well-written film well-written film well-directed film that's that's the job of the the director isn't it to make you care at the same time you're watching at the same time it isn't done in a realistic way what reservoir dogs does and yes i know you have mr orange bleeding out through the entire of the the entirety of the film um but what it does in a realistic way is portray the visceral horrendous nature of violence what is worse chucking a human being in acid so they dissolve and like are in tortured and then they eventually get destroyed by a car running over them or seeing a man have their ear chopped off yeah this is the argument between censorship and violence and the portrayal of violence in film and this is the issue you get with reservoir dogs um perfect example Kelly's Heroes, superb mm. film, set in World War Two. Some of the worst uh, violent atrocities in human um, history occurred in World War Two, as we both know, as as our listeners will know. At any point, do you see anything in Kelly's Heroes that makes you think, "Ooh, that's um, ooh, ooh, a bit know. much"? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you no. don't because it's not that kind of film. No. It's a heist film first with comedy comedic elements and then it's a war film second <coughs> now fast forward <coughs> to i forget the year it came out i might be completely wrong and people get angry at me about 1997 98 save private ryan uh oh, sometime in the mid 90s i don't know if it was that late um, uh, so so yeah late yeah. 90s it's just well, yeah. mid to late 90s you have save from private ryan spielberg the man who made et made that film yeah right superb obviously superb director he makes this film and what he's trying to say in that film is to create a realistic portrayal of war to the likes of i would argue we have never prior to that film seen a world war two film that accurately portrays the violence it was the... just straight up visceral wasn't it yeah like yeah. people going onto the beaches and getting absolutely wrecked well he, he does it twice though doesn't he i mean look at schindler's list yeah well that was a very first, accurate wasn't it? portrayal of human suffering yeah and, it, and, it's, and it's bloody accurate. It's exactly, you know, it's not supposed to be there to go, oh, isn't that funny? 
these are people who suffered horrendous violence. And that's the point. And that was the point of Saving Private Ryan. You don't watch it going, hey, the good guys. It's a story, a true story, or based on true events at the very least, <coughs> that deals with a horrendously violent subject that hadn't really all that been portrayed very well in media. I mean, it had to a certain extent, but not to the level, the realistic nature that you get in that. And I would argue you would got more realism in Vietnam films that happened than rather than World War Two, because of the nature of violence and the, and the way the films went. And going back to where Tarantino comes in with his films, he's not trying to make a comedy picture. He's trying to show a crime thriller about the a bust that goes horribly wrong, somebody who's fighting for their life, trying to make sure he doesn't get caught by the other actual criminals. And at the same time, there is violence going on all around him. I mean, that's, I mean, that's just it. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, it's Tarantino, basically, with Reservoir Dogs. He is giving a homage to the films that he watched from the similar kind of genre he's aiming for and absolutely loved. I mean, he, he, he goes on record as saying like, he has influences from like the 50s with things like Kansas City Confidential, uh, The Big Combo, stuff like that. Even Django movies from the 60s. Uh, I mean, the fact that everyone's named after a colour, he took that from the taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. He, he, he's taking these influences and he's painting his own picture with it. And it's a picture that's fitting of the time in which it's made. The, the, the you know when we hit the mid nineties, violence is more prevalent, so obviously it's going to be used more. But he is, in his own way, still trying to tell this kind of story, isn't it? Well, I mean, I think if you look at the history of cinema, when you go from the eighties, the eighties very balls to the wall, big neon coke signs, Madonna, big hair, bombastic stuff like Rambo. Not about the original Rambo. Because I've always said this about... I, I love Stallone. I think the guy is uh, very clued in, very clever uh, writer, director and actor. I think he gets... He is actually more cerebral than um, Arnold Schwarzenegger or Bruce Willis ever was. Yeah. Uh, not well, to, you've, only, you've only got to look at those early films to see that, though, haven't you? Well, yeah. I mean, you look at Rocky and you look at Rambo. They're character pieces, first and foremost, well, rather than anything else. First Blood, for God's sake. Oh, First Blood's incredible. Yeah. Uh, and you watch those films and then afterwards, because he's not a stupid, he's like, well, how do we how do we sell this? How do we sell ourselves and get some more bums in seats? How do we get that? And he very cleverly takes an element that is very much part of the time. For example, Rambo 2, when that comes out, there was a lot of stuff in the press at the time regarding prisoners of war from the Vietnam War still being... POW still being in Vietnam. Yeah. So that's what First Blood Part 2 is all about. Yeah. Then you go to the third one, and it's all it's about, about Middle East, the it? Middle East with Soviets versus... Relevant. Yeah, and, and, relevant who, and, and very much like Living Daylights, it's, they're helping the Taliban. They're freedom fighters. Yeah. You know, then they're freedom fighters. Later on, they're bloody terrorists. Yeah. So... 
regardless of going down that kind of path, but my point is this, it, it escalates. So you start to get a sense in the 80s of more distorted violence, more bombastic and more like, hey, Richter, see you at the party. And like <laughs> chucking people down in um, like elevator shafts and like let off some steam, Bennett, and like yeah. throwing off, you know, all that <laughs> kind of stuff. And that's great. And I'm not insulting that slightest. They're awesome films. But it's um, distorted violence. There's a cartoonish nature to it. And I suppose going back to Robocop with the guy going in toxic waste, there's a cartoonish element to that. It's it's kind of like divorcing itself from realism. Exactly. What happens is in the early 90s, after all these kind of popcorn flicks and these kind of more um, way out films that you have in the 80s, you start getting more um, indie films. Yeah. Independent films that kind of have a purpose. Yeah. It, more than anything else. They, they Right. We are telling this story. X, Y, and Z. This story isn't what you think that you're used to watching um, prior. This is going to be one person's struggle in the backdrop of this particular era regarding this issue. You know, like, I don't know. Um, for example, Shakespeare in Love. Or yeah. uh, the it, English it, patient. Yeah, it's, it's 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 a period of bucking convention, isn't it? I mean, very Tarantino, much so. Tarantino has made a, a career of bucking convention. I mean, he 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 did it right from the off with Reservoir Dogs, and the fact that he quite often with his film plays around with the narrative flow. You know, you might get Z at the start of the film and A towards the end, and it all just links up that way. It's not a straight up linear narrative flow, and that's the way you like to roll with that. And he still does it to this day, from time to time. It's that bucking of convention, isn't it? Yeah, and but the the violence he shows is more realistic, and that's yeah. And again, it goes down to that source of I want to tell this story. I'm not trying to glamorize it. I'm trying to tell a story that is interesting. And I want to show violence in a way that is interesting. And at the time, interesting was realistic. Yeah. Oh, it was. It was all about realism, Batman. And I think that's the difference. That's the biggest difference. So you come out of one period, which is like hyper-realistic, hyper-violence, which is crazy. You know, like Rambo firing an explosive tipped arrow into a dude that explodes. And you don't see anything. It's like, well, okay, he's gone in an explosion. Um, And then you go from that to a person screaming in pain from one bullet wound to the stomach for the entirety of a film. Because Because that's what happens when you get shot in the stomach. Yeah. It's not like, (laughs) I've got shot eight times, I'm going to get back up and I'm going to do whatever. Yeah, There's a massive difference. And that is what I think... Uh, is well, you've got to take your hat off to Reservoir Dogs because you've got it adds it actually adds to the tension. You've got Mr. Orange for the entirety of the film worried. He's panicking. He's like, I don't want to to blow. He's dying. Isn't yeah, he? yeah, he's dying. You're watching a man die blown. during the course of the film. But the problem is because he's got in there as an undercover cop and he's done all he can to try and stop this heist going bad. He's there going. Shit, what about me? I got yeah. so preoccupied trying to put myself into this violence um, and sort this stuff out and, and stop these bad guys. I didn't stop to think about myself. 
And I think this is a good time to make a segue from discussing the film in general and its origins into the characters. So let's let's talk about the characters of the film. So you lead, dude. Okay. Well, they're um, a bunch of guys who have all been brought together by the Cabot crime family. So you've got Joe Cabot and his son, Eddie. They are basically two gangsters, obviously the Kingpin and his um, his son, who obviously is going to take over the business someday. So that they work very closely side by side and doing these um, heists where they basically group uh, some criminals together for hire and they set up a job and they go out and do that job. And this one, as unrealistic as does seem they bring in a bunch of guys who don't know each other to pull off this heist now uh, a, a number of people have said um particularly in fact eddie bunker who plays uh mr blue in the film he he, 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 was he a real to, con he was a real con he, he 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 was a real reformed criminal and author who um tarantino got in to try and uh basically uh, gauge the authenticity of what was going on. And, and Bunker actually set him straight and said, well, for starters, if, if I was being lined up for this uh, for this job, I would have walked the second I found out I was working with a bunch of guys I didn't know. And that kind of feeds into the story, doesn't it? This goes yeah. tipped up because these guys don't know each other. And I think that's the point of the story. I think that's why Tarantino still went ahead with it anyway, because he said, that is the whole point. These are, a, these are some dangerous dudes who are all being grouped together to pull off this heist and they don't really know each other and they don't know each other's motivations. They don't know each other's um, psychological states. <laughs> um, I mean, like the, the Cabots are like close friends with uh, Mr. Blonde's character, Vic Vega. The, you know, you get the impression that Eddie has grown up with Vic, but the thing is Vic is a psychopath they don't seem to gauge the fact that Vic is a psychopath because he's done good things for their family. Yep. And he is the catalyst for everything falling apart. <laughs> yeah. That one loose cannon is just so unhinged, he messes the entire thing up and it sets into the chain of events where ultimately everyone is killed. Quick question. <clears throat> Who is your favourite character in Reservoir Dogs? Oh, God, that's, an, that's, it's that's a hard that, one, isn't it? That is a hard one, and I think that changes a lot. Depends on the viewing, doesn't it? It does. I think the most rational character in Reservoir Dogs, even though he might be a complete fucking dick, is Mr. Pink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with you. The man is a fucking asshole, but he makes sense. <laughs> okay, so you're thinking Pink, because normally I'd go for Pink, but... I'm going to change because you're picking pink, which is cool. Um, I would say if I had pink off the table, that sounds like a dirty porn, doesn't it? Uh, pink off the table starring Steve Buscemi. Now all of a sudden it's less erotic. And Steve Davis. <laughs> the two Steves making a triangle you never want to see. You don't want to see this queued up. Pot uh, in the brown. <laughs> Tickling the pink. 
Oh my god, that oh that's wrong on every level. Yeah. Every level. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> Right. Okay. If I was to pick a character, it wouldn't be blonde. Um because blonde is an evil, evil person. He's psychotic. He's, he's, just, a, he's just a twisted motherfucker, isn't he? Do you know who I really love? Mr. Mm. White. Yeah, I mean... Uh, uh, he's got after, a loyalty. After Mr. Pink, he's probably the most rational character, but he's a dangerous man. He's a dangerous man, but... He, he's a very dangerous man. He's, he's a very dangerous. He's professional. He's a professional criminal, but he's an incredibly dangerous man. Yeah. And he, he doesn't have the same rationality as Mr. Pink because he quite regularly, during the course of the film, loses his head. The, 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 at one point in the film, they very nearly kill each other mm. because these are two almost polar opposites butting heads, aren't they? Yeah. But the very, very rational Mr. Pink and the very hot-headed Mr. White and again, it's an, an interesting idea of grouping these kinds of people together when they don't really know each other and they don't know each other's personalities and how combustible they can be together. Yeah, I would say that. I really, I find it fascinating almost uh, with with uh, Mr. White because there's a career criminal and because he's old school, you have that sense of gangster honor yeah the way he defends orange i utterly love it's like you're not gonna hurt this kid he's a yeah. good kid yeah. and he's right it's almost like he's taking he's taking orange under his wing he, like he, a father he, figure isn't he? he he probably almost sees himself in him yeah he, he, probably, he, he sees this young guy who's like trying to come up in the game and everything and um he just wants to like lead him on his way and he, he wants to protect him particularly when he's at his most vulnerable from these people basically guessing him the, 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 they're pretty certain they've got their rat and um, and he'll have none of it but it's good because basically what it does is it creates a sense of audience sympathy uh, sympathy sympathy for uh, Mr. White because of how he defends Mr. Orange. And we know technically... It costs him his life, doesn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, technically, Mr. Orange is the good guy. Yeah. You know... But he doesn't really feel that way at the end. Does he? Does he? Because you you (laughs) bastard. I actually feel more um, sympathy for Mr. White. Mr. White loses his fucking life because he trusted this guy. Because he saves the guy's life. Yeah. And ultimately takes it. Because the end of the film. Yeah. Everybody used to argue, oh no, um, everybody dies at the end. There was always a bit of... Yeah. The, 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 uh, for Mr. Pink, does he get away, does he not? Yeah. Um, I think, I don't think, I, I don't think Mr. Pink dies, to be honest with you. It's, it's very ambiguous what happens to Mr. Pink. You're assuming, at the very least, the fucker gets caught because you hear the sirens the second yeah. he's out the door. Don't you hear the cops shouting at him? You hear shouting and sirens, but you don't hear gunshots. So that's what that's what made it a little ambiguous, I think. Um, but someone like Pink, you can pretty much be sure he'd probably start shooting before he let them take him. So, you know, it could have gone either way. But you, the funny thing about 
funny thing about Mr. Pink uh, trying to escape at the end. Did you know Quentin Tarantino wanted to be Mr. Pink? He did. That was his. He wrote that role for himself. Yeah. And, um, a bit of admitted uh, ego play yeah. on his part. He's like, why I want to be Mr. Pink. So, the part is so well written because Tarantino wants to have it for himself. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the thing is, though, um, he, he, he made a point of letting all the other actors audition for the part. Um, and when Steve Buscemi came in and um, he read for it, Tarantino actually full on said to him, I wanted that part. But the fact of the matter is, the only way you're going to get this is if you fucking slay this right now. <laughs> now, at the time, Steve Buscemi wasn't a really big actor. He'd no, been he in wasn't. some stuff, but he wasn't a big name. He's an ex-fireman. So he, yeah, he was. He was an, he was an ex-fireman. Um, so, you know, he, he had to wow this loudmouth young director into giving him this role, and he got it. And you can tell he must have wired Tarantino because that was Tarantino's part. He wanted that part. Yeah. But it went to the right guy because Buscemi fucking slays it. He's awesome in that film. Buscemi is incredible in that film. And I think that's the best he's ever looked on screen is in that film, in my opinion. He looks cool in that film. He just <laughs> looks... Every single um, character in that film, even fucking... Um, Chris, Chris Penn. Thank oh, you, Chris in, Penn. in his shell suit. Jacket. In his shell suit, they <laughs> all look cool. It doesn't matter who they are; they all look cool, and it works. Yeah. Um. I, oh man, when <clears throat> when it comes to Mister, like going on to Mister Blonde, did you know Michael Madsen? has a huge issue with violence. Yes, he fucking hates it. He hates it, yet he does it amazingly. What yeah. a show of how good that actor is. Yeah, he yeah. has a huge difficulty filming torture scenes. Um, so... Yeah, but he... He, 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 he hates was, violence of any kind, he was apparently. He's a fucking believable psychopath. Mm. <laughs> and um, there's a bit with the cop, the character played by Kirk Boltz. Yeah. He ad-libs a line. Uh, he, he turns around and he goes... Uh, I think he's... Something about he his kids, wasn't it? Yeah, he's like... Oh, yeah, he like says that. something about he's like a dad or something. Yeah. And when they were filming it, Michael Madsen kind of broke for a second. He was like... Because it disturbed him. Because yeah. he was a new father himself. He didn't like the idea of a child being fatherless. And the takes in the film... So, in well, not in all the versions, but in some of the versions, it's in the film. I don't know why some versions it has and sometimes it doesn't. But listen out if you've got a copy of it. Um, I'm assuming it's going to be the older ones, not the Blu-ray, newer versions and things. Um, there's a somebody off screen says something like, oh, oh, no, no, no. Or, or oh, no, no, or something like that off screen. And uh, it may potentially be Quentin Tarantino. Uh, when when that's that's on some of the versions of the film itself. So that's kind of interesting, I find. And I've always liked the idea that Tarantino has gone on record saying, because we know that his name's Vic Vega. Yeah, well, the, 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 that's an interesting thing, because we all know that Tarantino kind of likes to tie his films together in some way. It might be very tenuous threads, 
but um, he's done it a few times in his films. And um, the, there's a link between Reservoir Dogs and his next film, Pulp Fiction, yep. in the characters of Vic Vega and his brother, Vincent Vega, who is also in the game. Um, he's an enforcer for... Um, Marcellus Wallace. Marcellus Wallace in, in Pulp Fiction. And um, yeah, the, the, Tarantino has said, when people notice the names, the surname matching up, they actually asked him a question. He said, yeah, the brothers. And his intention was to actually do a film featuring the Vega brothers. Um, what was he going to call I can't remember the name, but he, he, he intended to do a film with the two of them. Uh, unfortunately, it never happened. I mean, I don't know why it didn't happen. I mean, I, he, he's a guy who kind of loads himself up with work, Captain You know, it's probably just something, there's just some projects he has to let go because something else better comes along. And when you look at his um, body of work, you can't argue that he didn't make the right decision because there's some incredible stuff in there. It's just one of those what ifs, I guess. Wow. Yes, it's. I mean, when you look at it, I mean, Tim Roth as Mr. Orange. Incredible. Yeah. Like, no, no, he was, he was great. There yeah. is no bad performance in this film. I don't think there's a bad no, no, performance. No. no, no. I mean, you could argue Eddie Bunker because he isn't actually no. like a proper trained actor and everything. And he only actually has, what, what, two lines? He's the most realistic person in the film, I would well, argue. Yeah, he's he's, he's, he's the most natural he, he sits at that table and then that conversation, his response to stuff is naturalistic because you get the impression he's probably had conversations like this himself with other cons, you know? Exactly. But, um, yeah. No, 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 I get what you mean. There, there isn't really a duff role that stands out and you go, oh, that, that, no, that's bad. Um, there isn't, is there? You know the singer Pink? Yeah. Her stage name's inspired by Mr. Pink. What? Yep. That doesn't sound right. Is that right? Is that where she got the influence from? Yeah, apparently so. Okay, then. <laughs> Seriously. It's it's crazy, some of the stuff you think about. Um, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, like, you look at the performances, and I mean, there's a lot of people that are dead now. I think, is Eddie Eddie's dead now? Is he? Uh, Eddie, Eddie Bunk is dead. Chris Penn's dead. Lawrence Tierney's dead. Uh, I think everyone else is still alive. It's sad that so many yeah. have died. But, I mean, yeah. such a good film regarding cast. Mm. Moving moving from that, uh, let's talk about something I'm really looking forward to talking about. The soundtrack. Mm. This is like one of those films that just shows you how important music is to a film. Yep. I um, completely I agree. Tarantino is one of those directors who utterly, utterly understands that thing because it's, it's one of the main things that I look at in film as well. I am absolutely enamoured by music in film if it's been chosen correctly. Uh, I'm a soundtrack collector. Yeah, yeah, you are. <laughs> and I'm jealous of some of the soundtracks you have, you fucker. Because, um, yeah, music is, is, is as an integral part of the film as having a good writer, a good director, a good cast if you've got your soundtrack locked down and it gels with the film, it's as important part as anything else. I've always used this analogy when it comes to soundtracks. When people turn around and go, so, that's not as important as the acting and things. 
really is. I think it really is. I completely agree with you. <laughs> it really and is. a perfect um, point of view to to highlight this. I want every listener now to imagine every single scene in Jaws where you see the shark or the uh, preparation for the shark to attack to and be completely silent. Chaz and Dave. Chaz and Dave. <laughs> oh, there's a shark coming down. He's going to cut your face off. La, 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 la. <laughs> no, uh, basically, imagine, <laughs> imagine complete silence. Yeah. Now, reinstate the... Duh, duh. And it's that's the building. point. It's ten- yeah. Alfred Hitchcock used it. Yeah. Spielberg used it. Perfect in, uh, points. And Tarantino does I mean, this amazing you... thing of going past the orchestral score of things to, to build the kind of uh, emphasis on characters. Not there's a problem with it. I love it. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. And it happens yeah. all the time in Star Wars and things like that, and Star Trek and things like that. But what he does, he takes almost like a time capsule. It, it's his influence of popular culture, isn't it? Yeah. He, Tarantino is a man absolutely steeped in pop culture. And that shows from the soundtrack because it's so eclectic, so diverse, the choices that he made for that film. And indeed, all his films. We're actually going to be touching on that in the next uh, podcast as well because that's going to be our top three on the next one, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And, and interestingly enough, I want there's two directors that come up roughly around these times um, that are very similar, and they've worked for Miramax, and that's Kevin Smith and Tarantino. Yeah, both of them, I feel, in their initial films, Tarantino carries it on, of course, um, utilize a soundtrack that's a time capsule of the time. God, yeah. Particularly Kevin Smith, you look at the soundtracks for Clerks and I'd Soul say Asylum for well. Christ's sake. Oh God, yeah. Bad Religion, Bad Religion was on there as well. Yeah. yeah. And uh, again, the, the film after that, Mole Rats, is an excellent stuff. But look, Weezer and Suzanne, come on. Yeah, awesome. totally. <laughs> but this, but this is the point. They are they are directors who completely understand the importance of a great soundtrack and great use of music in the film. And I love the fact that they both get on. I think it's kind of cool because yeah. they basically go, Tarantino's there going, no, no, Kevin, this is what this means or whatever. I think you did a good job here. And then he'll go to Kevin Smith and Kevin Smith's like, look, dude, I think that man, that's amazing because of the X, Y, and Z. And they're very, people would be like, what? But they are very similar directors. When you break them down, <coughs> very similar directors. Yeah. They both come from a place, exactly, their approach to the way they look at film in general, I think is um, good. Because they're both guys, it's it's like I was just saying a moment, they're both guys who are absolutely steeped in popular culture. They absolutely love films. They're fanatical about films. What is the difference between having a conversation about the true meaning of Like a Virgin and a couple of guys talking about the contract uh, contractors for the Death Star. There is it. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. You're right. It's sitting around with your mates having stupid fucking conversations because these are questions that pop into your head when you're having like, uh, like light conversation with people, aren't they? You start 
talking in mad ta- well our listeners are very much aware of this you start talking in tangents you go off the <laughs> script yeah <don't> <laughs> very <laughs> much so yes it's so easily to, it's so easy to do when you're, you're listening like, to tangent fucking central <laughs> <laughs> but that's just it it's so easy to do and it also makes for naturalistic um dialogue in film as well you know what i thought was uh just closing on the um the soundtrack stuff he was so passionate about having the main song of the film by Steeler's Wheel that he was happy to not have any other song on the song. Uh, he just wanted to pay for the rights for Steeler's Wheel. That's right. <laughs> How mad is that? But if you thought of any song in that film, apart from the intro music. I, I, I completely get in there. I completely get him because he had a very definite idea in his head for that scene, for that music. Oh, yeah. I, I can totally respect that because, you know, I, I, I've i had, like, ideas in my head for, like, scenes in films that don't exist and what would be a cool piece of music to be playing at any one time and all the rest of it. And that's completely the kind of approach that tarantino has as well he knows what will go well with the visuals that he's utilizing at that time and within being so enamored with an idea like having Steeler's wheel stuck in the middle with you and absolutely adamant that he's going to have that in his film i can totally respect that so yeah closing opinions on reservoir dogs what do you what do you need to say about this film mr mid Oh, I, I suppose uh, I can't really stress how important this film is, particularly to me as a, as a film fan, because um, I I suppose like many people of our generation found Tarantino when we were at an age where we first started seeing these kinds of films, the, the kind of stories that you wanted to portray, these um, crime stories, quite visceral crime stories and all the rest of it. Um, and Reservoir Dogs obviously made a very, very strong opening um, impression of the guy, of what he was capable of, of what he was going to go on to achieve past this. Because, I mean, I, I, I think it can't be argued in any way whatsoever from a debut like Reservoir Dogs that this guy was not going to be anything but huge. Um, one of the biggest directors of all time in his particular field and uh, I, I don't think many people could argue that fact Tarantino is the dude he still is the dude he's still plugging away making films today and um, in my opinion he's released very little that has um, not been worthy of um, checking out and it all it all stems back to Reservoir Dogs it's such an important film for so many reasons um, I can't speak highly enough of it I think everything you've just said and I would add that now and again you get a director that turns up and has a directorial debut that is so colossal so impressive that it doesn't just make a footprint in the subconscious of pop culture itself it decimates it and makes people turn around and go what the hell just happened like a nuke has just gone off yeah 
In my opinion, Reservoir Dogs is one of those films. You have certain directors that have done that. And I think Quentin Tarantino, I think Kevin Smith. Yeah. I hate the backlash he gets because I actually have a lot of time for Kevin Smith. Um, I think Tarantino, especially with Reservoir Dogs, the way I just, it's a phenomenon. Um, and normally those directors go on to carry on being better and stronger and better uh, in general. Yeah. Uh, I would say I've seen it happen to certain directors and it fall apart afterwards. Yeah. Regardless of personal opinion of the film, I'm going on public opinion. I would say Zack Snyder is one of those directors. I like Zack Snyder and I get really pissed off with mm. people going, Hack Snyder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, no, that's not an observation. It's a low blow and you're not looking at things properly. You're just turning around throwing buzzwords. Don't do that. Actually look at what he's trying to say. If you don't like the subject matter and you don't like the way he directs stuff, that's one thing. But says a hack, I think, is completely stupid. I think you, you've got to be lacking intelligence to be doing that. Only because he has a, a grasp on cinema like the look of cinema. And I think, unfortunately, for whatever reason... Um, his films have uh, got to a point where people don't like him as a director, even though I think nothing he does in the respects of the physical appearance of a film or the competence of the way it's made makes him a hack in the slightest. Mm. I am one of the few people that will defend Batman versus Superman. Um, I think he did an amazing job on Man of Steel. Um, I thought that was a fantastic new version of Superman and I don't have a problem with it because uh, it's a start off. I think uh, Batman versus Superman kind of went slightly in the wrong direction, even though I liked the film and I think justice league is a fucking hot mess, but that's nothing <laughs> to do with him. I think it's to do with committees and chucking extra people in to try and rectify stuff because Warner brothers were forcing things to go quickly uh, for a universe, trying to do a Marvel when they can't do it. You need to set it up properly like Marvel did. Now, that little tangent aside, um, there are other M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah. Um, I think his films start strong and turn into dog shit. I haven't seen Split yet. Um, that will change, watch Split. That will, take, that will change your opinion because I was, uh, I was of a similar opinion of, the, of his films up until late. Um, he did a good one just prior to that the visit which was actually quite good as well i like but, um, he spent uh, yeah he had quite a prolonged spate of uh, wilderness years so I'll, I'll say that i loved devil but that's oh, not him yeah. as a director he, he didn't he produce that or something? yeah but it's a great oh, film it's a bloody yeah. brilliant film mm. um however i love unbreakable i'm not a big fan of the sixth sense <laughs> because I had the um, twist ruined for me before I went to see it in the cinema. Oh, man. There was a, I think there was a film uh, film review program called like The Ozone or whatever on BBC Two years oh, ago. Oh, yeah, I remember The Ozone. Yep. Yeah. They had a Geordie lady who walked out after, because they would review films and have the audience talk about what they thought of the film. Yeah. And during that weekend, there was a choice between Guest House Paradiso, End yeah. of Days, 
yeah. and Sixth Sense to watch at the cinema. And then the Sixth Sense, they ruined it. The Geordie lass goes, ah, and it's amazing because right at the end, it turns out that blank, 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 blank. <laughs> and I just went, well done, you stupid cow. I haven't <laughs> even seen that film. A lot of the country haven't seen that film. And you've literally it, it's like just what... ruined the ending. It's like Holly Willoughby in The Last Jedi, isn't oh, it? Oh, fucking... It was wor- <laughs> no, but it's worse. It's worse. It's, it's the it's actual... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we went to watch End of Days, and I will defend that film, because I love that film. I think it's great. Um, so, anyway, um, I thought his films kind of went down a tangent. Now, with Quentin Tarantino, I think his films are still strong. I think they're very good. I wasn't a big fan of Inglorious Bastards, Mainly because I felt that his directing style it it goes from being an mate one of the greatest introductions to a war film I have ever seen in my life. Mm. That is so well paced in terms of thriller and and like the oh. tense. It's Christoph Waltz all the way, and that's incredible, incredible. The guy's, the guy's amazing. Uh, the, the fact that he got into acting so late is just insane. He's so good. He, he should have been in bigger films a lot earlier. <laughs> so you go you from that. Yeah. And then you, the film turns into almost a farce. You have Mike Myers turning up, pulling his stupid fucking silly faces and pretend to be English <coughs> and stuff like that. And that bothers me. Um, and then you cut to a scene where Michael Fassbender is one of the, again, one of the greatest tense scenes I've ever seen yeah. in a uh, World War Two film ever. And I was just lapping every second of that moment up, the yeah. whole scene. It was incredible. Um, and then it divulge, uh, divulge, de-evolves, should I say, yeah. de-evolves into fucking uh, the director of bloody... Cabin Fever, and another guy, Machine Gun in Hitler. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like that. The, it, it's like two different films. It, it's really strange. You have an actual perfect war film, elements of a perfect war film with tension and perfect narrative structure and direction, and then you have crazy silliness, which is great, but it, they don't gel together. And that's why I'm not a big fan of Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah. But uh, apart from that, I think Tarantino's always been very fucking strong, very strong. And I think Hateful Eight was incredible. Yeah, it, yeah. So <laughs> I'll get to that soon. <laughs> from our from our final thoughts, where are we going from here, Mister Mid? Um, yeah, that, 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 that's a pretty good segue, actually, because what we're going to do now. Um, Pretty much the same as we always do. We're going to go into a top three. And uh, our top three this time is our top three Quentin Tarantino films. Now, as always, um, we can't include the film that we're talking about. But uh, anything else is fair game. So uh, we'll get on with that then. Do you want to go first? All right. Okay. And then this was an interesting one. Um, I'm going to change... I initially sent some stuff to Mid to what I was going to do. And he was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, he had his three. There was one of his three that I obviously went, oh, man. Well, actually, there was two. Uh, but 
but like um, I alternated. Now, I'm going to pull a bit of a cheat. My number one for Quentin Tarantino was two films, but as far as I'm concerned, they're the same film. Right? So it gives me an extra film to talk about. But I'm not going to go for direction. I'm going to go for writing. So my number three Mm -hmm. is going to be True Romance. Yes. I think it's an incredible film. It's beautiful. It's actually beautiful. It's Romeo and Juliet in the 90s. And not the bloody DiCaprio version. I'm on about, not the DiCaprio Claire Danes. I'm on about if Romeo and Juliet were to happen during the 90s to two people, two random people uh, who felt far in love and had no idea what they were doing. I love it. It's an incredible film. Uh, who directed it? Was it Tony Scott, wasn't it? Yeah, Tony yeah. Scott, not yeah, not yeah. Um, not Tarantino, but he wrote it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I- I'm sorry, there were so many elements in that film. I'd love to have seen what uh, Tarantino would have done if he directed it. Mm. Um, but there were so many. Um... In fact, a quick offshoot. Did you know that Joe talks about a girl called Alabama in Mr. White's flashback? Right. He, he does, and it's the same Alabama. <laughs> it is, and he yeah. originally wanted to get Tarantino. Uh, Tar- sorry, Tarantino wanted to get Mr. White and Alabama in a a film, an offshoot film, yeah. which I yeah. think is great. That would have been brilliant. I would have watched that. Um, like the Vincent Vega connection with the two John um, John. What the hell am I talking about? Yeah, John Travolta and uh, Michael Madsen. They were on about doing a Vincent Vega Brothers prequel film, but obviously yeah, they've got yeah. too old now. So I'd love to have seen that as well. And when when I look at True Romance, there is so much incredible stuff in there. Yeah. Dennis Hopper is amazing in it. Oh, Every god, Oh my god. All the, the scene acting with, between him and Christopher Walken. Oh my god. The interrogation scene. Yeah. Just brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Writing like that, Jesus Christ. It's just so tense. Did you know? That the nigger gene is passed down to you. So you turn round from blonde hair, and that's why Sicilians are dark hair and brown eyes. That's just incredible. It's so cool. I love that that whole thing that he says, because Dennis Hopper knows he's dead. So he's like, well, one last fuck you. I'm going to tell you a bit of history lesson about how your ancestors came to be. You Sicilian yeah. fuck. I <laughs> think it's great. And it's the thing as well. It's Walken's reaction after that scene. It's like, you made me do that. I haven't oh, killed him in 20 years. <laughs> yeah, I love that. When he's smiling, he goes, <laughs> this guy. <Yeah. laughs> he's just like, <laughs> this guy. <laughs> yeah, he's just going, I haven't killed a man since 1983. Or whatever it is. And he starts, you know, making up the, the, the line because I haven't got it in front of me. He starts shooting him. Uh, but it's great. <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> he just punches him in the nose and he goes, yeah. it's horrible. The pain makes you wince. The eyes water. And it's just like, oh, it's great. <laughs> Everything about that scene is incredible. Uh, just all of it's really good. And you feel for it. Dennis Hopper does a sublime performance. Christopher yeah. Walken's incredible. 
Um, Gary Oldman, for God's oh, sake. Dra- Drexel Spivy. <laughs> He's such a, an annoying, horrible character. But It's Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman does it. Just Gary Oldman's just incredible at doing these character pieces. Gary Oldman is the fucking Don, and if he doesn't win a fucking Oscar this year, something's wrong. It's like Leonardo DiCaprio all over again. Give Gary Oldman a friggin' Oscar. Has he never won an Oscar? He's been nominated. I don't think he's won one. That's I a, might be wrong there. That's a fucking disgrace. But I know he's, he's definitely been nominated. Before. That's a disgrace. Gary Oldman should have had an Oscar a long time I, ago. I, I, I saw Darkest Hour last weekend, and it, he's it's just something else. He's incredible. My mate Doug. Shout out to my boy Doug. Right. <laughs> Okay, so I always like to do my little shout-outs like that. My mate Doug, he works in a particular venue that um, was connected with um, Winston Churchill's past. And lo and behold, as preparation for the film, he turned up and he needed a historian to tell him all about these great things. My mate Doug is very clued up on his information. So what they did was he talked to him all about Winston Churchill. And I went, oh my god, what was Gary Oldman like? He went, he was lovely, really nice bloke. And I've seen, I'm so jealous of him. There's a picture of him and Gary Oldman. I'm like, oh wow, just a really cool guy. And I, I like the fact that he's a really cool guy. So, um, I haven't seen Churchill yet, but I really, really want to. And um, oh man, <laughs> like I can't understand how he's not won an Oscar. I, Leon I, I, alone. I, I... To me, I, it's an Oscar-worthy performance. I have just uh, fact-checked that, and uh, he has never won an Academy Award. He was nominated for Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. So nothing prior to that Dracula. was apparently worthy of an Oscar nomination. Dracula, in my opinion. Oh, then, my God. Uh, right. He's incredible in Dracula. When, I, I love that film. When Christopher Lee, Christopher, I am the Don, and you never ever say anything against what I have to say Lee turns around and goes his performance as Dracula was far more superior than mine right <laughs> you listen that's, to Christopher Lee that's a pretty big plaudit isn't it really <laughs> Christopher Lee went head over heels in love with Gary Oldman's performance because he was like the way he gets the razor and he licks the blood and the ecstasy and all that and he was just like oh so amazing and you're like Christopher Lee the man himself has turned around. Look, I know Bella Lugosi and whatever, okay? And I'm not having a go at you, Bella, but to me, Dracula is Christopher Lee. It was, yeah, come on, everyone talks about Lugosi, but the guy was hammy as fuck, wasn't he? Let's face <laughs> I'm not going to go far, really? so far to, to yeah. disparage him that way, but I will say that I've always been a stronger proponent for the Hammer Horror version of Dracula yeah. because he was always yeah. a badass. Um, if I was to have my top three Draculas, it would go... Oldman, because his performance is just sublime. Yeah. Lee, and then very close third would be the dude who played Dracula in Monster Squad. What? Uh, what? Have you never seen Monster Squad? I have. It's just like that, that, that was your number three. Okay, that's fine. Are you fucking mental? Have you seen him as Dracula? <laughs> He's intimidating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. got a physical presence. When was the last time you watched Monster Squad? Uh, admittedly a very long time ago. Right. Get your ass round mine. We'll crack open a bottle of scotch. <laughs> we'll watch Dr- uh, Monster Squad. On my 30th birthday, we went to America and I picked up a copy, the Blu-ray copy of the film. 
um, which works because they lock the players, not the discs, but the disc works on UK players. Oh, you've got a region free one. That's yep. pretty cool. And it's got yeah. a great making of documentary. And mm. uh, we've got to do a Monster Squad on one pod. But I love the guy who plays Dracula. He's so good. And when you rewatch it, you're like, he's got presence. He's incredible. He's really, really good at what he does. Um, he's my third favourite. So oh, there right. you go. So anyway, um, yeah, True Romance is my number three. So, and I think Patricia Arquette is oh. <laughs> gorgeous in that film as Alabama. She, oh, she breaks my heart because of her kindness and her honesty and her goodness. Yeah. And Christian Slater is so cool. And what kung fu films is he watching? Sonny Chiba. There we go. <laughs> so I'm just saying. Um, okay, so that's my mad rant. What's your number three? My number three will have to go to... It's actually... Two films on my list are actually fairly recent Tarantino films. Um, my number three is Django Unchained. There you go. Um, this was um, Tarantino's first, uh, shall we say, dalliance with Westerns. So um, good. So good. Yeah. Up and it's... For the first three quarters of the film, I love it, and then I hate it. Sorry. Really? Okay. Yeah. No, no, but you no, carry no. on. You carry on. I'll explain afterwards. It, it, it's his own personal uh, interpretation of the popular Django series um, that was around in the 60s and 70s. The deer is silent. Um, what? The deer is silent. <laughs> and um, basically, yeah, I mean, the, the group of actors he gets together for that film, they just, in my opinion, they slay it. I mean, you've got Jamie Foxx being as cool as a freaking cucumber in what can only be described at one point in the film as a page boy outfit. <laughs> <laughs> Let's face it. <laughs> yeah. He still acts like a fucking Don. Um, you've got, uh, Christoph Waltz continuing his ascent as basically, let's face it. Everyone's favorite German. It's just effortless charm. And wit. He, he's, he's, I don't know. He's one of those people who just brings um, a warmth, I think, and a familiarity to whatever role he, he takes, even when he's playing complete bastards. I mean, he's not playing a bastard, obviously, in, in Django Unchained. But um, you know what I mean. Hmm. He, he just has a way with delivery of dialogue. It, 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 it feels very personal. And, um, well, lastly, you've got Leonardo DiCaprio, who, quite frankly, steals every freaking scene he is in in that film. He's incredible in that film. Even going as far as to spill his own blood in the process. What? Um, you know the scene, um, it's quite late in the film when they're around uh, the dinner table and he's talking about the skull. Right. Um, yeah, he has like the skull, like a slave skull on his uh, desk and he's talking about skull shape and all that and then he goes like completely off his head and smashes his glass on the table. Yeah. Well, he actually punched the glass into the table. And if you watch that scene, his hand is absolutely pissing blood. That's not makeup. That's fucking real. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, um, 
Tarantino basically he made a judgment call. He was either going to cut and get a paramedic to come in and see Leonardo DiCaprio's hand, but he quite rightfully saw that Leonardo DiCaprio wasn't fucking stopping. He was carrying on and he was absolutely fucking slaying it. And just that extra fucking layer of method over the top of it. It was just, oh man. So, <laughs> so, so impressive. Uh, I, 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 I used to like, make fun of uh, Leo DiCaprio uh, years ago, around about the t- Titanic era. Uh, but I couldn't possibly say that today. No. Really. Well, the thing is, I, once you start getting I, a bit more middle-aged, fat and ugly, uh, you actually start being a better actor. It's weird, that. It's not even that, though. He, he's, he's always played good roles. I mean, you, you go back to his very early ones, like... Um, Gilbert Grape. When he, was, when he was Arnie in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. To be an actor that young and to portray... Um, a character who's mentally disabled and do it so well. I actually thought he was at full retard. You are. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was fully retarded. The thing is, though, it's yeah. To, to, to coin the uh, phrase from um, Tropic Thunder, that's exactly it's, it. <laughs> it's the one time going full retard actually works. <laughs> He's great in that film. He's brilliant. He is absolutely brilliant. He's believable. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I think that's to say, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I, I, I unfairly, I think, in my youth, marginalised Leonardo DiCaprio. And now I talked about think... his most incredible performance of all time. What? Critters 3. <laughs> Critters 3, bloody hell. <laughs> yeah. Don't ever take away from Critters 3, son. That's a masterpiece. One of his very early roles. That was That's essentially Die Hard with aliens in an apartment <laughs> building. Do not take away from Critters Three. <laughs> no, I mean, you look at Tarantino, not Tarantino. Sorry, you look at DiCaprio these days, and you can't fault the guy. And um, the way everyone got behind him over the whole Oscar thing, and then very rightly winning an Oscar eventually for The Revenant, um, it really vindicated all those years of hard work and. Um, his performance in Django Unchained is definitely up there amongst I'm them. I'm going to say something now that's going to make you go, what? Okay, go on. I haven't seen The Reverend. You haven't seen The Reverend? Oh, mate, mate, check it out, seriously. All really I know good. to do with fucking bears and Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, he, <laughs> he, he gets properly done over by a bear. What, they shag him? No. It looks like it at one point. It looks like he's having a rough shag with a bear, but he isn't, he's getting mauled. <laughs> don't don't cheapen this. I'm in. <laughs> you have me there, fucking sir. <laughs> uh, again, we're, we're tangenting. <laughs> yes. So yeah, let's um, go to. Well, oh, sorry. Have you finished? Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's just rounding up what I was saying about just some absolutely outstandingly strong performances in this film, and it's a fun story. It's a fun film. Uh, again. Uh, very interesting uses of um, soundtrack in it. Like, um, it's a Western, but he's managed to seamlessly meld hip-hop into it. Fucking hell. So cool. So, Yeah, there's a partial hip-hop soundtrack to Django Unchained. Sorry, no, I was thinking about The Reverend for a second. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, Django, yes. I just got (laughs) back in The Reverend for a second. (laughs) Jesus. If there was a hip hop soundtrack to The Revenant, it would have been a very different film. Well, that's what I was thinking. I was like, how do you put hip hop to bear fucking? Um, 
Dun, 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 dun. Get up now, here. <laughs> but no, no. Like I was saying, again, yeah, it's it's, it's another example of um, Tarantino absolutely nailing soundtrack to something that you wouldn't necessarily um, expect it to go with, uh, and it works so well. It's 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 just Tarantino doing what he does and doing it really fucking well. I love Django Unchained. Fair point. I'm all about the Django Unchained. I like that. Okay, so my number two, uh, number two. Okay, so uh, my number two is going to be uh, Death Proof. Okay. Now this will shock some people, but I actually I love Kurt Russell anyway because of my love for uh, John Carpenter, Kurt Russell films, and I just think the guy seems like a genuinely nice bloke in real life as well as an incredible actor. Now. When I watch Death Proof, it's not a perfect film. But what I like about it, it has a very distinct story and very distinct characters. And where the narrative falls down, perhaps with it being a bit more simple, which is very strange for a Tarantino film because you're used to more complex narrative stuff. I think what helps it is the complexity of the characters that discuss things with one another. And that's what I like. And I think Death Proof is a really, really good film. I think it's, um, uh, the uh, Grindhouse part, film was... Incredible. Yeah, it was, a, it was part of a great doubleheader, that. I mean, because the, the, the Grindhouse project was like a really interesting idea. And it was born out of... Um, I love it. It was born Tarantino out Tarantino uh, and... Um, uh, yeah, it was their love of Grindhouse cinema from the nineteen seventies and early eighties. I could have happily and, seen another Grindhouse set of films they did. Yeah, if they, if they did another one like that, I mean, just nailing two ideas together and making one massive film out. Of it. I've got the cut where the two are joined together. Have you? Oh, uh-huh. no, yeah. I haven't got that. I Still love. I at the two, <laughs> Planet Terror is the better film in my opinion. Uh, it is. It's my kind of crazy silliness because it's yeah. like a John Carpenter flick. It is. Um, at the same time, though, I think they're both brilliant films. I love the fact they took, they'd piss take fucking um, uh, trailers for stuff that doesn't exist. I Like, inspired Nazi werewolves of the SS with Nicolas Cage as Fu Manchu. Steals it every single time. Oh. <laughs> the Edgar Wright one for don't. <laughs> yeah. Don't. 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 <laughs> They're all perfect films. You they can really imagine are. them existing. I love them. I love um, them. Eli Roth was Thanksgiving Day or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Thanksgiving. <laughs> White meat. Dark meat. <laughs> They'll all be carved. <laughs> it's just like Jesus. And at the end, he's like cutting into turkey, and he'd be like, "Oh, and it looks like it's pork in it." <laughs> I just, I, I love, I love those, um, I love those the, those films. I think, and the fact that they got destroyed critically proved, yeah. I think they're okay. way before their time. I think they're way before the time. Mm. I think if they released really those enjoyed, films I, now, I enjoyed Blind Dice as a whole. I thought it was yeah. great. I think if you released them now they would have made more money. I think there were a few years before their time. 
yeah, yeah. before people sort of went, oh, I get the I get the joke now, and I get the idea behind the narratives of these films and why they are what they are. Well, there are scenes missing out of it. I, the Death Proof, it breaks me every single goddamn time where it goes right. We'll just settle down here and everything will be fine. We just got to sit down here and keep our heads down. Nobody, <laughs> nobody. Uh, start fires or something like that and then it just goes missing real and then it cuts later on in the film because they're missing the real and the whole building's aflame and the and michael bean's like injured and the guy's like i'm sorry sheriff oh my god and it's like bleeding everywhere and i'm just like no explanation (laughs) no explanation what happened genius i i love it every every time i see that it breaks me i absolutely love it and um I, I'm not being funny. You know what came from those films, which I thought was amazing. Mm. They did a competition for a Grindhouse uh, film trailers, and there's a loads of really cool stuff. But one of my favourite messed up films, but Machete, Machete was there. That was great. But my number one out of all of those Grindhouse uh, trailers made by Hobo. fans, Hobo with a Shotgun, yeah. with my boy Rutger Howering. I picked the copy of that up on Blu-ray the other day for two pounds. God damn, I've got that. I love that film. Absolute bargain. <laughs> Violent as fuck, and at the end, you've got the fucking song "Run with Us" that was popular in the Raccoons bloody cartoon. <laughs> what? I love that film. I love Hobo with a Shotgun. I, 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 I think I think we might actually have to cover Hobo with a Shotgun at some point. What do you mean we might have to? We fucking yeah. are covering Hobo with a Shotgun. There's it's not what a might about the other it. Day as well. of, of a film of a similar vein, I really want to cover Turbo Kid as well. Yes! Oh, <laughs> right. The girl in that. She's so sweet. The girl in that, shout out to our friend Joe, um, <laughs> reminds me so much of our friend Joe. The girl in that. She's, yeah, yeah. Uh, when you watch it, you're like, oh, yeah. And when I said it to you, you're like, oh, yeah. And it's Absolutely. not in an insulting way, in the slightest. <laughs> you're like, I get it. Nice person, very much in their own space, but very kind and cool and nice. But there's something about her that just, it pings Joe to me. And it's nice. And, and in, a, in a good way, not in an insulting way, in a really nice way. And because uh, she's an amazing character and she's really sweet and you end up liking that character a lot. And she reminds me of Joe, our friend. Uh, Turbo Kid's great. And it's got Michael Ironside in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can't go wrong with an Ironside. Um, so, I, I, yeah. I was very late to the party with Turbo Kid, but I'm glad I saw it. And um, yeah, yeah I've, te- I've, I've watched it a few times now. When you got... text me, it was great. You went, have you seen Turbo Kid? I was like, um, I've, yeah, I've got it. And you're like, oh, right. It's like, yep, <laughs> oh, I've got it. <laughs> love that film it's fucking ace my wife bought it me it's great uh really enjoyed it and it broke my heart at the end but we'll talk about that in another pod yeah um so yes death proof on to your number two please sir my number two will be uh tarantino's second western uh one of his strongest films i think from his late career hateful eight yes this is one I was really cheesed off that you picked. I was like, damn, it's such a good film as well. It's fucking it, long. Doesn't oh feel God. it. Does it, not feel it. It's a, it's a long film. It's, it's one of his longest films. But, um, yeah, like you were saying, you literally have no concept of time watching that film because it just flies past. I 
absolutely loved Hateful Eight. Everything about Hateful Eight when it came out, it, I was just absolutely enamored with that film. Um, the, the, the cast he assembled, the performances he got out of them. Again, uh, his choices of um, scoring uh, Ennio Morricone. Um, choices of um, contemporary music he chose to s- slot in there. He put a White Stripes song into that film at the right moment. It was just so perfect. Um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's indicative of a, a director late into his career and still hitting it out of the park, I think. I think that's the best way to describe Hateful Eight. And it's um, so good. It really is. It, it is a really good film. It, it, it's, it's it's number two for a reason. It's one of his strongest films, without a doubt. I absolutely adore it. Favourite character in that? Walter Goggins. Yeah, yeah. He's, again, he's, he's another asshole who at times does actually make sense. Yeah. And he's a character, like, as an actor... Have you seen Vice Principals? No. Oh fuck! Right, I'm I'm changing one of my um, recommendations later. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so yes. So uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. Am I on to my my next one? Yeah, yeah. I'm keeping it short and sweet on that. Okay. <laughs> right. So my uh, next one is where I merge two films into one because, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, they are the same film. They only got um, released in two parts because Miramax wanted to make more money. That's the reality of it all, because the length of the films. Because otherwise, it'd be like four and a bit hours long. And that's Kill Bill 1 and 2. And yeah. I I think anything you want to... Th- if you ever want to think about... I think it was the last... Sorry to, to jump about. I think it was the last truly great kung fu revenge story to ever come out and that's both in the east and west i just think it's a genius film everything about that film to me is stunning i walked out of volume one pumped because after watching the abominations that was the matrix volumes two and three (laughs) um i was really annoyed that people are going oh yeah well this is what kung fu cinema is i'm not it's not what kung fu cinema is and then Tarantino comes along and goes, no, fuck no, this is Kung Fu Cinema, and goes back to, again, Sonny Chiba, that yeah. kind of era of uh, Kung well, Fu. Well, Chiba was actually in the film, wasn't he? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Master Hanzo, or Henzo. Yeah. Um, brilliant, the way they do things. The fact they put anime at one point, that's really interesting, to, to, to break up the picture. And we go, oh, that's an interesting moment, where they talk about uh, the backgrounds, the, the way the characters react, the fact that you love the bride, the way the bride uh, goes around things. Um, the, every single character, whether they're bad or good, is interesting. Bill, who's the evil fucker that did everything, you end up liking him. David Carradine, as far as I'm concerned, um, before he was found dead trying to wank himself to death in a fucking closet, he was. Uh, this was the best performance he ever did in his life was in Kill Bill. Oh, there's Bill. a suiting epitaph for a man, isn't it? Wanked yeah. himself to death. Wanked himself to death in a closet. Choked one out, literally and figuratively. Um, wank. Yeah. So before he was found hanging, having a having a dirty... Asphyxi-wank. Asphyxi-wank. Having a, uh, an, a, a moment in excess. 
<laughs> so, like, before we did that. <laughs> what? No, no, no. <laughs> I took a pot shot at two people who've died that way then. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so, before, before that, you had um, the best performance he ever did in his career, in my opinion. Mm. Easily the best performance in his career. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a very fair thing to say. Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. I love them. I think they're they're actually perfect Kung Fu films. Yeah. No, I wouldn't argue with that at all. Brilliant. Uma Thurman brings it. Love it. So, on to you. Uh, my top spot, um, for me, it couldn't be any other Quentin Tarantino film. I'm sure many people would probably say the same thing. Uh, it's Pulp Fiction. Fuck it. You took two ones that I would have picked in my list. But I thought, you know what? You gave me Big Trouble in Little China. I'm I did. letting you have these two. <laughs> uh, Pulp Fiction, what can you say? What what? That's that's how you do a sophomore effort. That's how you uh, beat people saying that you're going to suffer from second album syndrome and crash and burn and all the rest of it. No, what you do is you take the bat and you hit it out the fucking park a second time. Yeah. My God. <laughs> I, I actually can't criticise Pulp Fiction at all. It's a perfect yeah. film. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. I, 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 would, I would challenge anyone to say something bad about Pulp Fiction. And he will fight you to the death. <laughs> no, really, because I, I, I don't think there's many bad things anyone could ever actually say about Pulp Fiction. It's... Just oh, it's just so well crafted. The way the stories interweave, the stories that they're telling in the first place, the performances he gets from the actors. Again, the use of uh, soundtrack. Um, it, again, it it I think it pretty much challenges Re- Reservoir Dog soundtrack as one of its strongest. The collection of songs he got together for the Pulp Fiction was just spot on, and oh, the main theme he chose to use as well. Um, Mizzaloo. It's just so iconic now. You hear Mizzaloo, and now all you don't think of like a surf pop hit from the 1960s. You now think of Pulp Fiction, Pulp Fiction. straight away. <laughs> yeah. E- e- Any e- of you motherfuckers move, and I'm going to execute every last motherfucking one of you. Boom. It's that second freeze, and that guitar comes in. It's just, oh my god, it just like tears your arm stand up. It's just perfect. All I always think about, in fairness, I think I agree with the soundtrack. It is actually better than Dogs. And Mm. uh, (coughs) I always think of uh, Girl. I just, I love that. Uh, Mm. They're both both great soundtracks, but out of the two, it's fiction. Pulp Fiction's always, yeah, it's got it. It's a better collection of songs. Uh, I I think that's um, in no small part parts of the fact that he had more oomph now to get the songs that he wanted for his it's, soundtrack I, I totally agree with you because with Dog <coughs> you have a couple of songs that are great yeah. but ultimately there's one standout one Yeah, maybe two but if you look at Pulp Fiction oh my god it's, it's surrounded with great uh, great songs the entire soundtrack album it's one of the great soundtracks you know you, 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 have, hit, you, have, you have just like song after song that hits it out of the park and they were just beautifully chosen for that film and inserted at the exact right moments 
and that can be said of a lot of things in that film it was just so many right choices um he, he, he had all the pressure in the world on his shoulders in making that film and um proving to naysayers who um rubbished him for reservoir dogs call him a hack who's stealing ideas and plagiarizing people and all the rest of it and he didn't have anything original to say and then he goes okay then here's pulp fiction and he silenced everyone rightly so he ended up with a palm door mm. uh what, what 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 can you say is it's 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 perfect this is the best film that he's made without doubt and um that really is saying something because there's some other films that are very very close to being as good uh, Hateful Eight, I'd say, is one of them. But, um, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, I don't think anything really trumps uh, Pulp Fiction. Right. So, with that, let's go to our top three recommendations. Do, 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 do. So, right. what's, what's your first one, then? <laughs> with that monumental introduction. <laughs> I'm keeping that in the edit, by the way. So, what, what, oh, yeah? Yeah, I think it was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's your first introduction? Um, yeah, my, my 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 first recommendation would be actually something that's been around for uh, quite a long time, probably about a good three years ago. It probably came out, and that was the uh, Mad Max video game that was released. Oh, that was good. I enjoyed Xbox that. One, I I just started. Um, replaying it again recently and was reminded just how well it was done it's got a great uh, intro song son of man yeah yeah i love yeah, that song it's great because um it, it it makes it feel almost like it is another mad max film yeah definitely um it it, it the, the way the whole game is um, structured it's very filmic it, it it feels like it's in the mad max universe uh and it's just a very well structured game it's got a good strong engine behind it it looks absolutely beautiful mm. still does three years on it's still really impressive to look at um the, the the mechanics they use for combat and driving are spot on kind of steals the fighting mechanic from uh the batman arkham games with the uh combo heavy combat but also making it very easy to combat uh, to um counter and all the rest of it keeping it very grounded very um very much like something anyone could pick up and and um and master with enough time um it's just a really enjoyable game um i, I know it's an old game um strictly speaking because it did come out a number of years ago but i played it again recently and it just reminded me of how good it was and i don't think uh, an awful lot of people played that game when it came out and I think you should. You could probably pick up a copy of that now quite cheaply oh, pre-owned. Yeah. So uh, uh, if you didn't play it and you have a PS4 or an Xbox One, I'd advise you to go out to CEX or game or something like that, find a pre-owned copy and give it a blast. Because, um, yeah, particularly if you're a film fan as well, uh, if you're a fan of the Mad Max films, obviously. Mm, I loved uh, every second of it. You'll get a lot of enjoyment out of it. Do you yeah. know what I liked doing? was doing the um you could do chases as like side missions uh one of the yeah. things is to stop convoys and so it becomes yeah. essentially the end of mad max, max. 2 
if it's Mad Max 2 and you're just playing it. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. <laughs> well, what I liked doing was getting the soundtrack for Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. And playing that with a yeah. So while you're playing, I was just like, "This is incredible!" And I turn up really loud, and I would like be ramming people off the road. And I just like, "This is." I was. It was a thrill. It was a genuine thrill. I loved. I loved playing that game. The thing is, I I played it ages ago, and I I just forgot about it because it just gets swamped under everything else that comes out. And uh, uh, I went back and found it again and started playing it again and realised this is just fucking incredible. It's great. It's a really good game. And I think everyone else should play it too. I think you're right. I agree with you. (laughs) Um, My uh, pick is going to be slightly out of there. Anybody that knows me knows that one of my little hobbies to collect, because my little girl is only young, I like to make sure that all my horror merchandise has gone. So things like my <laughs> Evil Dead 2 figures, my NECA Evil Dead 2 figures and all that kind of stuff, they're, yeah. they're gone. I had to because I couldn't have a situation where my little girl was getting terrified or anything like that. So I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. So I got rid of them. Instead, I thought, what would be kind of cool as she grows up? Because she's five now. What would be kind of cool to um, have that she could enjoy with her dad? And my little girl um, has a very eclectic taste. Good for her. And that's how I think it should be. Have an eclectic taste. Have fun. Um, like what you like. She she will like anything from My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, which, by the way, is really good. When you start watching it, it's a really good way of teaching kids about emotions uh, and um, kind of relationships. I think it's a really – and it's fun. Uh, I was just like, no way did I ever find myself coming close to being a brony until I saw that show. Um, <laughs> but the other the other thing she loves is Transformers because she associates Transformers with me because I, a lot of my friends were like Decepticons. I thought the Decepticons suck. I, I love my heroes. I've always loved heroes. So I love the Autobots. Uh, the greatest, one of the greatest heroes of all time, let alone Autobots of all time, is Optimus Prime. So uh, my little girl has a Optimus Prime in her room that protects from the bad dreams. And it works because she's like, <laughs> I don't care. I've got my Optimus Prime. He's got a big gun. He stops the bad dreams. And he's Optimus Prime. and He's a good guy. And in her head, she's like, yeah. And he's with Rainbow Dash. And, <laughs> and, and he's with Wallace and Gromit. And they'll make sure that I'm looked after. See, that's one of that's one hell of a team right there. Oh man, I wouldn't mess with them. I wouldn't mess with them either. <laughs> so, and and then she's got the Paw Patrol. All, all bases well. are covered there. All the bases are covered. <laughs> uh, so she loves them, and uh, she loves it when I get a new Transformer. And I, what I tend to do when I was a kid, I had a really frustrating dilemma. I loved the Transformers. I loved the look of them. Um. But you uh, wanted them to look like they did in the car- in the cartoons, didn't you? Exactly. I, found, I remember having this conversation with you. Yeah. I used to get frustrated that they didn't look like they did in the cartoons. I wanted them, like, for example, the Ironhide and Ratchet figures were figures that essentially didn't have fucking heads. It yeah. was weird. And what it was, <laughs> the designers of the toys put the um, the the windscreen, the windshield, and said, oh, no, it's not the chest. That's a cover for the head. And at the very, very top, what you actually have is if you look, if you turn behind the windshield, you have a um, a chair for a person to sit on. But when you turn it around, it's actually their face. And I was like, low wank. 
It was it was shit. I'm sorry, it was wank. I was like, yeah, that's great. Why doesn't he look like he does in the cartoon with the rad little fucking mohawk? Um, yeah. What the fuck? Uh, so uh, I love the fact that now we live in an age where they can um, engineer toys and have these kind of things. So I love collecting my third party uh, and my Takara Masterpiece Transformers. And these are Transformers, if nobody's ever heard of them before, that look exactly like they did in the fucking cartoon. Yeah. Uh, like, Midi has seen them firsthand. I've got a whole bunch, could have been collected for a number of years now. Skylar loves them. She loves them. She's like, yeah, look at that. That's cool. And she knows the names of the characters and she loves them. And there's something from my childhood, which is kind of cool, which I love. And uh, I've got Hot Rod. I mean, I'm, I'm just doing a quick tally around. I've probably got, what, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18. <coughs> about 20, 21 of them, which sounds like a lot. And when you put it into monetary it, uh, value, it is because they're quite expensive. But it's been over a number of years. I've got all the Dinobots now. Uh, and I got a hot rod and whatnot. But recently I purchased the latest Takara Masterpiece Transformer, which is the MP39. Uh, and it's called Sunstreaker. I love this figure. It, if anybody remembers who Sunstreaker was in the cartoon, he was the yellow uh, Lamborghini. Uh, Lamborghini? Is he a Lamborghini? Let me just double check. Let me have a look. Because I'm saying Lamborghini. Um, but I could be completely wrong. Yes, he is. He's a, uh, a Lamborghini Countach uh, or whatever. And he was that. Um, he was yellow. The engineering in this thing is crazy. I can see a clear de- uh, change in the engineering styles of the figures that were released earlier to the figures that released now. They recently released Megatron, uh, like because they had an original one and he was a bit shit. And then they went from MP10, which was Optimus Prime. This will be the scale, and we'll do it like the scale as close to scale as we can uh, to the cartoon in a certain, you know, in our toy order. Optimus Prime is amazing. He's got a Matrix and everything. I, I absolutely love it. Um, and they've released all these different characters that I love. And they released Sunstreaker recently. And he's incredible. The amount of effort, if you to see how complex it is to transform him from a car to a robot. And when he's a car... All the the, the uh, doors open like they would in a normal car. You've got the pop-up headlights, all this kind of shit. You can change it so he looks like he did in the cartoon, but then you can change it so he looks like a genuine Lamborghini, and then you can change it so he's got the missile launches that he fires out when he's in car mode in one episode, like that only ever turned up once, and then he's got a little face plate that's a mask that turns up in one of the uh, episodes uh, called Hoist Goes to Hollywood, he comes with a little figurine, which is called Chip Chase. He was the man who, if anybody ever used to watch the 84 uh, to 86 cartoon series of the Transformers, the original two series, um, you had a young man called Chip Chase who was a disabled lad who was a computer genius. And he comes with the character, he comes with the figure, and you've got him, and he's in his wheelchair and everything. And he's great. Uh, so that's nice to have a Chip Chase. Um, he's got different faces. The articulation on this figure is insane. If you like Transformers, if you like how they looked originally in the cartoon and you wanted figures that looked like they did in the cartoon, for God's sake, 
get a masterpiece transformer they are incredible and from that we're going back to mr mid okay um my second choice is a film it's a film i wanted to see last year uh it was on a very limited release in this country uh nowhere near uh where i live unfortunately so i didn't get to see it but uh, i finally saw it this week when it came out on dvd and blu-ray and it is a ghost story um it's a uh independent film it was released last year uh and if i had seen it last year it would have been on my top 10 list of 2017 not just that it would have been pretty much near the top it's it's an incredible film um it's i suppose in many respects it's a hard sell because it's it's kind of leading you to believe something that it's something that it isn't necessarily you know portrayed as being um you you're expecting like a, a supernatural horror film maybe from a title like a ghost story but actually it's it, it, it goes much deeper than that it's more of an exploration of things like uh life love loss um the, the very nature of what it is to be a human our, our perception of time it goes to some very deep places um and it does it in very interesting ways um it, it, it's it's an incredibly slow burn of a film and when i say that i i do not mean it lightly it is a very slow burn of a film because it it almost it lingers in um the mundanity of trying to even operate under like extreme grief and loss and um uh, you see that from two perspectives of uh the person who died and the people that he left behind uh and it's it's it, it, it's remarkable it's um it's got a very small cast to it i mean it's uh the two leads are Rooney mara and uh, casey affleck they're both incredible uh casey affleck in particular because for the majority of the film he is literally wearing a white sheet with eye holes cut into it what yes <laughs> he, he is a very literal uh imagine how a child you ask a child to draw a ghost what do they draw someone in a sheet with eye holes that's literally what the ghosts look like in this film. And <laughs> yeah, no, no shit. But for the majority of the film, Casey Affleck has to act wordlessly wearing a sheet and still convey these um, complex ideas and emotions. And he actually fucking does it. And it's very hard to describe unless you actually watch it yourself. It's incredible. Um, yeah, if I had seen this film last year, it would have been easily in my top five, possibly even my top three. I, wow. I absolutely loved it. Um, it's not going to be for everyone. It is a it is, is a straight down the middle film. You're either going to fucking detest it, you'll think it's a pile of garbage, or you'll fucking love it. Uh, and I'd like you all to make your own decision on that. Go out there and uh, check out A Ghost Story. Great film. Right, with that, it brings it to me. This uh, this came out this week on Netflix, and it's anybody, <coughs> anybody that knows me uh, knows that I love Godzilla, 
and they released Godzilla, Planet of the Monsters. Um, oh, it's a new anime. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. just come out. It's part one because it's part of a trilogy. It's a slow burn. I had to watch it twice to make, make me go, huh? Because it's the animation isn't won't be for everyone because they're like it's kind of computer uh, computerized, but it's not. I'm not too sure about it. Um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, when I watched it a second time, I enjoyed it even more. Um, before I would have given it probably a C plus. Now after watching it a second time, I give it a solid like uh, B. Uh, I don't think it'll get any higher than that, but it was enjoyable. And it's setting things up for future films that they're going to release. I think there's one later on this year, um, around about May, September time, they're going to release it. And uh, there'll be a third final one. So it's a bookend. So essentially, this is the start of a story. So the way, what makes it good, because it does dip and it drags in the midsection. Yeah. What makes it good is the very end of the film. Um and then makes you go, wow, okay, that's kind of cool. And it obviously leads on to more stuff. What I will say is if you do watch it on Netflix, uh, make sure you wait till the very end of the credits. There is a little something at the very end, which I think will be very pertinent to the next film. So that's my <coughs> recommendation. Going back to you, Mr. Mid. Right then. Uh, being as we're talking about Tarantino, my uh, next recommendation is going to be Tarantino related. It is Tarantino 20. It is a box set of Tarantino's movies. It came out a couple of years ago. Um, and it is great. It, um, basically, it groups together. What's the list of films? Uh, you've got um, Reservoir Dogs on there. You've got Pulp Fiction. You have got Jackie Brown, True Romance, Inglorious Bastards, Kill Bill, Volume 1 and 2, Death Proof. Um, that's everything up to that point, I believe. Um, and uh, thrown in with it, you've got uh, like a series of um, documentaries, um about um tarantino and um its approach to filmmaking um you have um critic discussions on tarantino films um you've got all the usual sort of um special features relating to each film itself you've got absolutely beautiful cover artwork from mondo who do amazing jobs whenever they do cover design for stuff uh and uh Unfortunately, it's very hard to get a copy now for a reasonable amount of money. Unfortunately, uh, scalpers. Yes, it's Fucking one of those scalpers, uh, man. Um, if it, I, I, I might be wrong, but I, I get the impression it's now out of print. Because every time I see a copy of it online, they're asking upwards of eighty quid for it. <laughs> right? Can I just stop you for a sec? Scalpers, mm. officially from, um, from five by five. Uh, I would like to say this, and I think Mr. Middy joins me. Fuck you and the scum. horse that you rode in. You're, stop, you're scum. Stop you and the scum. Yeah. Stop <laughs> screwing over people to make a quick buck. Yeah. Stop messing over fans. And this comes for concert tickets, and it comes to merchandise, and it comes to uh, albums, and it comes to uh, films. Don't be dicks. Let proper fans have them first. Mm -hmm. Nob ends. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, it, it is very hard to find a copy these days for a reasonable price. I mean, you might luck out, have a look around on eBay. If there's, if you ever see like a bid going for Tarantino 20, for God's sake, give it a go. Because um, it, it's not a complete collection, because obviously he, he's released films since then. But um, you get the, a sizable amount of his uh, work up into um, Inglorious Bastards. And it's a great set. It really is. It, it, it's a go-to set if you're a fan of Tarantino. Tarantino is funny. There you go. And now it goes down to me and my final uh, choice. Now, originally, I was going to have something else. But something happened. What happened, Mr. Mid? Do you remember? No. Nor do what? I. What was that? <laughs> I turned and said, right, I'm changing my end thing. And I can't for the life of me remember what it was about. So uh, I'm a bit dosed up with the old beer and flu medicine. So I'm a bit of an idiot. (laughs) And I've I've actually It's a heavy concoction. It's a heavy concoction. So I'm not going to lie to you. I'd rather be honest. I've actually forgotten what I was so vehemently going, yes, I will change my last. um, What you'll do, mate, is you'll listen back to this. And you'll add it in next time. That's what I will. Good call. I'll make a, a mental note. Chris, who's editing in the future, make a mental note at this point. Um, so, future Chris. Dear Chris. Good old future Chris. He knows what to do. Yeah. Leave it to him. Um, so, right. So, so basically, what I was originally going to have, I'm going to have to fall back on that now after making such a bold statement earlier on in the episode because I'm a dickhead. Um, so, like, I'm going to, but I'm an honest dickhead. Uh, so, I'm going to change it over and uh, I'm going to put it back to how what I was originally going to, um, I was originally going to pick. Okay, so I was going to pick Batman Harley Quinn. Right. Okay, so Batman Harley Quinn is a Blu-ray that came out recently, and it was a DC Universe original movie. And uh, it's set in the original Batman the Animated Series uh, universe, so that's the same as the Justice League and Superman Animated Series universe. And uh, what it is, it's uh, Batman and Nightwing have to get the help of Harley Quinn uh, to uh, ensure they can stop uh, the Floronic Man, who's a... Basically, imagine Swamp Thing, but evil. It's the easiest way of describing him. And uh, Poison Ivy, uh, because they're about to turn the whole planet into plants. And, of course, uh, Poison Ivy's uh, closest accomplice is Harley Quinn. Um, so they they there's a big story of, about that. And it's funny, it's a bit silly. You get to see a superhero... Uh, sorry, supervillain um, bar, which was funny. Uh, Melissa Raunch from Big Bang Theory. She plays Harley Quinn this time rather than Arlene Salkin, uh, which is a bit of a shame. But she does a pretty good job. I think she does an okay job with it. Um, I wasn't too sure when I first watched it because it, it it's really strange. The humour seems a bit inappropriate at times. There's like sex jokes in it. And I'm like, where are you aiming this for? Uh, so it's a 12 rating so I'm kind of like who are you aiming this for because that's not quite the animated series because they had a guideline they had to adhere to because being Saturday morning cartoons Uh, but it's not quite fully adult because it's taking the um, the look and the aesthetic of these original films uh, of these original series 
Uh, so it's a bit strange. There's a fart joke in it, which makes me go, what? Which is really nasty, uh, but kind of cool at the same time. Uh, funny. Uh, but it's it, it gets very silly. It's funny and it's silly and it's a bit weird. Some people will be deterred by it because they're like, no, that's really strange. It's quite a comedic departure from the animated series. I think it fits in with the idea of the character of Harley Quinn. Um, but I think there's a bit of an adult spin on it at times. So... I would recommend watching it because I kind of enjoyed it. Uh, there were moments I was like, what? But I still enjoyed it. So if you get a chance to watch it, that's... So I, I would get it. It's available to buy on DVD, Blu-ray, and on streaming services. So uh, get it now while you can. And with that, that, I think, is our top three. It is. We're done. So what's next time, Mr. Mid? Next time... We continue our little mini Tarantino series, and we are going to look at my top pick from this time. We're going to look at Pulp Fiction. Nice. And um, yeah. we've got some guests appearing uh, in the future, near future. Before we go, got to plug it. We have films in a flash. So they are going to be uh, putting on a um, showing of Reservoir Dogs. So the time of this podcast, uh, when it comes out um, on the 24th of January, yeah. on the 26th of January, which is the Friday, we have Films in a Flash. And what they're going to be doing, uh, they're going to be showing um, Reservoir Dogs, uh, and it's going to be in Shrewsbury. But if you want to make the trek, it's worth it. Our good friend Declan is... Um, doing doing the show as normal it's really going to be good it starts at uh seven o'clock at the ditherington flax mill the tickets are available at uh skiddle.com and that's going to be on the uh well it says the 27 oh sorry it's ahead it's the 27th it's at the 27th i uh it's friday the 27th friday the 27th yeah try it again of january yeah. Okay. Look. That's probably twenty six. It must be twenty six. Unless it's go. on Saturday. So it's either the Saturday, yeah. the twenty seventh, or the twenty sixth of January. Um, it's uh, it, no, it's Saturday the twenty seventh. I apologise. I uh, apologise. Yeah. This is an awful <laughs> plug, and I apologise to our friends at Films in a Flash. They deserve much better. Um, it's Saturday the twenty seventh of January at seven o'clock. Is at the Ditherington Flax Mill. Tickets are available at skiddle.com and uh, it's worth going. It's the 25th anniversary screening of Reservoir Dogs and uh, we can't sing uh, the praises of uh, Films of the Flash enough because they're great, they're brilliant. I love going to see them. Declan's a lovely bloke. The team at Films of the Flash are fantastic. Go watch it. Support local cinema around Shrewsbury, uh, especially when it's done for fans like this. It's something that we rarely get a chance to experience, and it's something we should really appreciate as well. So go and watch it, nice and cheap as well. I think tickets are around about six, seven pounds. Um, definitely worth a watch. So, with that, next time, we will be uh, doing some more podcasting about Pulp Fiction. We also have some uh, friends joining us in some of the future pods. I'm particularly looking forward to uh my good friend from um from 
sorry. I've got the ch- <coughs> oh my god! Sorry, it's the AIDS. Is that long there? It's one of the AIDS. So just talking about their podcast gave me AIDS. Uh, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> sorry for cutting through the ball in the post-truth apocalypse. I'm so sorry, guys. I'm so sorry, Mike and uh, and Gas and Pen. I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to disrespect your podcast. I love your podcast. It's amazing. Um, but uh, if you get a chance to listen to a podcast, listen to Cutting Through the Bull in a Post-Truth Apocalypse. They're really funny and they always make me smile. And it's one of my favourite podcasts to listen to. Um, we're going to have Gaz from that show turn up to help us with our Transformers the Movie podcast. I look forward to that. And hopefully we'll have the rest of the lads uh, in another section when we do some good old action films. If we ever do Predator, uh, if we don't have Ben on board, I think I may be executed. So we've got to have Ben. Um, (laughs) That said, we also have our good friend Sam Dolan uh, joining us for our Karate Kid uh, pod a little bit later. So until then, this is Mr. Mid saying goodbye. And Mr. Chris saying, <coughs> I've got the AIDS. Help me. <laughs> Christ, I'm going to die. No, hopefully not. <laughs> Take care, everybody. <coughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.